wave there. Oh, oh, reviewing Hellraiser. We're five films down out of ten, and in this episode, we're going to cover another three. Hellseeker, Deader, and Hellworld, a.k.a. the Rick Bota Trilogy. A man who has worked on as many entries as Clive Barker himself, and is widely thought to have spoiled the franchise. As per usual, I'm joined by my co-hosts for this miniseries, Mr. Alistair Yule and Jim Lamming. Say hi, guys. Hi Hi there. But before we go back into the grim world of straight-to-video sequels, let's have a wee discussion about what else we've been watching. Potentially these are better offerings in Hellraiser Parts 6 to 8. So Al, I'm going to start off with yourself. What have you been watching lately? I've actually been re-watching some of the Grudge films, um, because... Sometimes you just hold a grudge and you want to watch that unfold on screen. And it's some J-horror, as they call it. And I would say, I watched the American remakes, by the way, with Sarah Michelle Gellar, which I think are inferior remakes to The Ring. I think that got a better transition to uh, Western audiences than The Grudge did, but I still quite enjoyed it. It was good. I think definitely the first ring did. I think the first ring was a really good example of how you update the lore to make it something that's more American, but at the same time still keep the scary aspects of the story. With The Grudge, I'm not so sure, because they kind of kept a lot of the same issues the original film had, like the really confusing timelines and uh, the kind of episodic approach, right? So it's almost like an anthology film. That's the, I think, the most recent one. The original... I find the original grudge to be uh, far more streamlined story-wise, but it does do a lot of sort of flashbacks uh, to, or I could say, possibly almost a confusing degree, uh, because most films will have flashbacks. But the flash, if there's multiple flashbacks, they themselves are usually kept in chronological order. Mm. But then at the very end, there's a sort of strange dream sequence where Sarah Michelle Gellar's walked into a room and she sees the ghost... And the ghost walks about, but then it's a flashback within a flashback to before all of the previous flashbacks. So it's, uh, <laughs> on the one hand, it's a film that makes you, what with the groaning and the creak, the, the, the little boy who makes the cat noises and the groaning girl, they make you want to hide behind the sofa. However, the, the plot details that you need to understand what's going on obviously need the audience attention. So mm. it's... Uh, it's <laughs> It's the tug of war. <laughs> I, I, I sort of thought that the the sort of puzzle box approach almost attracted a little bit from the scariness, because particularly, and I think it was the second Japanese one, which is just really impenetrable as a story. You're like, okay, this is sort of scary, but I don't know who these characters are. Yeah, if you've, if you lose track of who's who, then the sort of the scare factor isn't quite there because the audience do need to invest in the characters. And I, I feel that we're going to sort of touch on this topic later on in tonight's podcast. For some <laughs> oh, potential spoilers. Uh, what else have you been watching? I've recently, that's actually been it. Uh, just a, a quick trip down Grudge Lane. That's, if I can phrase it that way. Um, but it was quite fun. I enjoyed it. Uh, Jim, are you a fan of the Grudge films at all? Uh, I've seen the remake with Sarah Michelle Gellar in it. Uh, it was all right. Um, there's nothing I can really add to that. <laughs> I did go to see the more recent version at the cinema. Uh, all I can say about that is that it looked good. Yeah, <laughs> it's the same director as the uh, the eyes of my mother, which was a kind of all style, no substance art house horror. And so when I saw that he was attached to the grudge, I thought, okay, well, you know, maybe maybe if a mainstream property, we'll get something pretty cool. But 
No. Um, I mean, I took one for the team, watched it, and gave it one and a half stars. In fact, Al, I think you were beside me while we watched it. One of those very few films yeah. where the audience were talking, and I didn't like it enough to tell them to shut the fuck up. Oh, I didn't like it. I mean, that film broke its own rules, because this is a continuation or a reboot, a remake, sequel sort of creature where you can attach multiple different titles to it, but... It, the opening prologue connected it to the original American remake grudge films. But in this one, it we go back to America and other characters die. But now there, there's a reason how the ghosts are the way they are in the original films. The boy makes the cat noises. Him, The boy and the cat were drowned in the bathtub. The, the wife had her neck broken. So she makes that gurgling, growling, creepy noise. That's why those ghosts are the way they are. That makes sense. The The most latest film does not follow that at all, that just any ghost makes the creepy, gurgly effect just because it's creepy. And that, throughout the whole film, that just annoyed me. <laughs> yeah, and it's not clear where it sits in relation to Amiver by acknowledging the previous ones, but then having ghosts that are not the same ghosts, but have mm-hmm. exactly the same... Like, powers, yeah. Yeah, same powers, the same iconography attached to them. Yeah, are these ghosts... If, if someone travels to America and comes back, and like, does that mean that if they die unexpectedly, their spirit's going to have the Japanese supernatural powers? <laughs> this, this lack of serious continuity we might be talking about later on as well. <laughs> Possibly. Uh, I've actually recently rewatched the American version of The Ring and also the Japanese one. And you know, I've said this many times, I prefer the American one. I find the mythology, the kind of lore of it, a bit more interesting with Samara and her abuse of the hands of her parents. Is this kind of got more of a visceral impact than the ESP sort of telekinesis storyline did for me? That being said, like the Japanese one, you can't mess with the uh, locations on that. You know, like rural Japan just looks stunning. There's a really good atmosphere to the whole film, and it's an absolute classic for a reason. But for me, the American one just beats it. I think also part of the American one, what really helps with it is the ending where you could totally believe that that's the end of a Western film when, you know, she's down in the well. She's like, oh, yeah, helping the ghost. And then her son's all like, what? You weren't supposed to help her, Rachel. And you're like, oh, hair's on end. Loved it. That was a brilliant moment in the film. I mean, there's the obvious moment with the television, but that the son saying that, well, that was fantastic. I loved it. Absolutely. Pulling the rug out from beneath you. Jim, are you a fan of the Ring films at all? Yeah. Um, I actually got the box set of the Japanese ones uh, a few months back. It's one of those pretty similar to the matrix in terms of it being that ingrained in popular culture i was pretty certain i'd seen it but you know it turned out i hadn't and uh, <laughs> so that was that, that was uh, pretty good to go through those uh, quite recently what do you think of the sequel uh, de- definitely declining quality as, as they go along there was actually two sequels to the first ring film one was called spiral which released simultaneously and then you had the Ring 2, which was released after the popularity of the original. But I think I actually enjoyed Spiral a bit more than Ring 2. If you liked Spiral, you'd absolutely love the book of Spiral, because for me, Spiral is the most interesting of the books. But it's the one that doesn't really lend itself to a movie. You don't really have 
big set piece moments it's not got such a sense of fret about it and by the way it's funny you should mention the matrix because one of the later novels has a very similar concept to the matrix so uh yes worth checking them out they get increasingly science fiction and uh what did you make of ring zero it was it was interesting uh, oh you got to give it that it, they they did try to go down a bit of a different route with the you know than the other films but again it was not not entirely great i mean it was interesting they tried to add a bit of lore to you know her origins and so on sadako's origins but i think it, that the way it escalated was probably just a bit too melodramatic mm. all of the films i enjoyed the style the, as you said the settings rural japan was just beautiful like the way it was filmed, how it was shot was all fantastic. But yeah, they do a decline in quality over. The prequel is is a you know an interesting watch, and if you're really into the other films, definitely give it a go. But yeah, I just it feels separate to the other Ring films. It doesn't feel like it belongs. Maybe it's like the the Sadako of these films. You know, it doesn't quite fit in with all the yeah. others. We sort of love it for that reason. Um, what else have you been watching except for these uh, Ring films? Oh, I was just going to fit in there. A fun little fact is that Hiroyuki Sanada, who plays the uh, professor, the college teacher in the Japanese Ring films, is actually my most watched actor of this year so far. Well, oh, actually, shit. joint most watched with eight films, including the new Mortal Kombat one, for some reason, Rush Hour 3, Army of the Dead, Sunshine, Life. But can you guess who my joint most watched actor is next to him? Ooh, so I reckon it's probably going to be someone who's appeared in some of the Marvel ones. I think he should be guessing a bit closer to home. Oh, hang on. What are we talking are we talking about Don Bradley uh, absolutely, here? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but anyway, on, I've I've not really had a lot of time between the previous podcast and this one to watch anything, but I did manage to fit in the new director's cut of Rocky Four. It feels like a different film, yet feels like exactly the same film. They've managed to add a bit more of a dramatic weight to it. There's a lot more with Apollo Creed, a lot more with Adrian, more dialogue, a lot more drama. Yet, I wouldn't say it was any better or any worse than what we already had. In fact, I think that the montages in the director's cut are longer. (laughs) So getting away from that whole MTV excessive style is not so much the case here because I'm pretty certain that we did get some extra footage and uh, those songs did go on a bit longer than I remember them doing. See, I'd have actually thought that he'd go the other way because if you're trying to add lots of extra drama and make a more serious movie, but having Hearts on Fire and No Easy Way Out as of over <laughs> total bangers, they sort of make a film yeah. seem stupid. Um, you know what? Like it, it didn't feel out of place. Uh, a lot of what was in the original Rocky Fall was uh, cut out you know, and left left out and replaced by these newer alternative scenes. So it wasn't any longer. It was just structured slightly different. I think even the James Brown bit had a bit more to it as well. Definitely a lot, lot more <laughs> um, different angles, different character reactions, that sort of thing. 
And Bridget Nielsen's character, she had a lot less dialogue, but seemed to appear on the screen a lot more at the same time, which was which was very odd. Oh, cutting his ex-wife's yeah. material. What a dick. Um, but yeah, overall, um, I would rate it exactly as I would the original version of Rocky IV. It's a great film. Guilty pleasure. Always good fun. Um, although I will add that the fight at the end of the film does seem to have more of a story to it rather than it's just those two fighting. It does seem to have been cut in a way that you can tell that Sylvester Stallone's improving as he goes along, whereas Dolph Lundgren is starting to get worried, realizes, oh, wait, I am mortal. And you, know, you can just see it in their faces, like they themselves tell that story as opposed to the, the actual physicality of it. So that, that was a pretty neat touch to it as well. And uh, speaking of Mortal, uh, I actually watched the Paul Anderson version of Mortal Kombat in the last <laughs> week as well. Um, I don't know why, but, you know, uh, uh, you know, another guilty pleasure, much like Rocky IV. It's pretty terrible, but I enjoyed it all the same. <laughs> guilty pleasures oh, are the best. Absolutely. Comfort blankets, aren't they? <laughs> oh, yeah. I believe you were recently playing uh, Resident Evil Village. Ah, yes, absolutely. Right? I finally, finally put it on sale. So... <laughs> You know, now is the time to give it a go. Oh, absolutely. Like, I'm not going to pay 45 quid for a game I'll complete in six hours. Yeah, uh, I guess by modern standards, uh, a lot of games do have a, a good 40-hour lifespan on them. So Resident Evil Village was one I'd, you know, undenied about. But yeah, the sale definitely helped with that. And I really, really enjoyed it. Yeah, it's a short game, but, you know, what goes on is fantastic. It looks great. And it just happened to be snowing at the same time that i was playing it so that added a nice extra layer of depth to it for me i remember when the game was you know we'd seen the announcements and then it being released and all of it was basically memes about uh, lady dimitrescu and for someone who had not seen any more than that you would just assume that the entire game was based around that but it it was actually surprising how much more there is to it and how better it was really from what i was expecting but yeah playing it on uh, the series x it looked fantastic and i had a great time and it's probably my favorite mainline resident evil game for a good few years not including the remakes as i've really enjoyed those as well but yeah definitely i would say probably the best resident evil i got 10 years or so i personally preferred the seventh one i Think. Yeah, people can hear me and Emma's review of it. It's the same episode with Spirals, and was that episode seven or something? Eh, who knows? Anyway, um, I I definitely enjoyed this one, and I thought like it was really varied. But something it lacked for me was the same kind of suspense that we got out of uh, part seven. I, I played the PS5 game recently. I was uh, playing the director's cut of Ghost of Tsushima. Finally completed it after fifty solid hours <laughs> or so. And you know the thing is. It's a bit like a, a Quiet Place too early this year, where it's a game that does everything well, right? It's It looks excellent, it handles really well, the combat system's dead novel, but for some reason, it's just difficult to love it. Uh, yeah. You know, it's a bit like having... It's a bit like having anxiety at a party. You're hanging around going, like, this should be fun, but I'm not really enjoying yeah. myself. And I'm not sure what it is. I think it's just because it felt a bit like Assassin's Creed with a different, uh, a different setting or something. Like, it felt like a game I played yeah, before. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that. It, it, it's The scale of it is huge. But when some of the missions are going to find this 
this tiny object from the other side of the map, it does get a bit much. I mean, it's I, I loved riding my horse through the Japanese countryside, all the different environments, the colours, all looked fantastic. But it does get a bit much when you're going from one side to the other, and it, you know everything kind of gets a bit diluted. So a lot of the action can be fantastic. The cutscenes are amazing, but it does seem that you do have too much of a good thing with this one. And one of the main problems for me, I did actually review it for the website, but the PlayStation 4, which I played it on, running this game sounds like 25 hair dryers stuck together all going off at the same time. Uh, <laughs> it's horrible. This is our reason for upgrading to PS5. Our PS4 just can't, it couldn't handle most games. It would just start going like, in fact, most Blu-rays yeah, would yeah. have it have it going to a little frenzy. It is... It's just time for an upgrade. Uh, Al, I love your car sound effect. <laughs> that was brilliant. Here, Al, you've been playing any video games lately? No, recently, actually. Um, there's one that I'm wanting to have a go at called Limbo. It's a very back-to-basics platformer, but it's I think it's, it's got a great atmosphere look to it from what I've seen. Sort of everything's like the colour. There is no colour scheme. Everything's just black and white, and you're playing almost a stick figure that's trying to run through a very dangerous land with giant spiders and uh, an abandoned warehouse and everything that comes after you. It's a difficult one to describe. I would actually recommend people go uh, have a look at Limbo. It's uh, it's very it looks very atmospheric and a lot of problem solving, but it's just got a very scary atmosphere. Mm, it's very good, but also very bleak as well. <laughs> yeah, bleak's the word. Well, folks, I'm going to tell you what I've been watching lately. Listeners are maybe going, hey, we're spending longer than usual in this segment. Can't think why with Hellraiser 6 to 8 to talk about. This bit is going to take up half the show. <laughs> we'll just go, what do you think of that? Uh, so uh, I watched something because of this show, and that is Spencer, which Jim mentioned in the last episode. And oh, my God, I thought this was great. It's genuinely harrowing. It's got really good presentation and there's some dead emotional bits, particularly one involving a car. And that is not what you would think from a biography film of Princess Diana. The one thing I didn't like about this was the Anne Boleyn parallel just felt a little bit flat and sort of took away the agency that the character struggles with throughout the course of the movie. Yeah, in an age where people still get a hard-on over the royal family, I kind of admire the absolute audacity of the filmmakers to make this comparison in the first place. Is it horror? Sort of. I certainly wouldn't correct anyone who says it is, and it does have some of the scariest sequences I've seen in the cinema for quite some time, just as sort of eeriness and the, the gaslighting element that we do see in a lot of horror movies, whether it's things like you know Rosemary's Baby, which we've reviewed for this website, stuff like The Invisible Man, and we do have a lot of the kind of gothic imagery, particularly concerning her uh, her old house. So, yeah, Spencer really, really liked it. Thanks for the recommendation, Jim. <laughs> no worries. Yeah, and what you've said is pretty much bang on. Um, yeah, the Amberlynn stuff was a bit on the nose, really, wasn't it? Uh, again, it, it kind of steered towards horror, maybe a ghost story, but didn't quite fulfill that promise, did it? I'm not sure if I like Kristen Stewart appearing in it. She seems like she's got some good acting chops in general, particularly after uh, after Twilight. Like she's done some much more adventurous projects mm. since then. But at the same mm. time, I didn't think that she had the natural charisma to pull off the part. She is playing a passive character for the whole thing, and sometimes it's difficult to kind of infuse a 
an element of likability about a character who's mostly just doing what she's told for half the film. But at the same time, I just, I, I, I just, she just didn't quite land it for me. Uh, personally, I thought she carried it really well. I enjoyed it. And yeah, I think everything I've seen her in, especially recently, has been really good. Even Charlie's Angels, I enjoyed that one as well. <laughs> her, uh, her wigs were all oh, absolutely. The, stylistically, it's brilliant. Like you, as I said last time, you can tell what era it's set in just by looking at a single frame of that film. Uh, uh, other things I saw, I watched a classic horror story streaming now on Netflix. It's an intriguing enough premise, and you've got some pretty interesting lore to it. It's an Italian film, by the way, if anyone's wondering. It does take a wee while to find its rhythm, but once it takes an unexpected turn, it commits to it in some really clever ways. However, there's a bit of a kind of throw everything out of a wall and see what sticks approach to writing, and I think that works against it. It also borrows from a lot of very big movies. I'm not going to mention them here because it'd be huge spoilers, but that kind of detracted from it. There's a familiarity about it, and there's also a bit of a smug tone, which I'm not going to explain here either because it would give away a heck of a lot of spoilers. But good Unlikely to make many end-of-year lists. I know 2021 has not been the best year, but I don't think this will feature many lists. Still, if you've got Nightmares to Kill, worth a watch. And uh, finally, you guys have received a trailer for Wild Mountain Time. No, I haven't, actually. Me neither. Right. Wild Mountain Time is not a genre film, so I normally wouldn't talk about, talk about it here, but man, this is the room-level bad. I shit you not. But unlike The Room, you've got a really good cast. You have John Hamm, you've got Emily Blunt, you've got Christopher Walken, you've got that guy from Fifty Shades of Grey. Fuck knows why all of them signed up to this. It's a dull, meandering, pastoral romance. It's got this will-they-won't-they angle running all the way through it. But the audience aren't going to care. Nobody except for the actor's parents is going to be particularly invested. <laughs> However, what I would say is this is genuinely... Genuinely, it's partially redeemed by having the most insane plot twist I've seen in years. Honestly, it's worth watching just to learn why the two of them aren't uh, together yet. The guy gives us reason. Oh, God, it's funny as hell. I have to say that, as you're saying, this is not a genre film, yet you're comparing it to The Room. I mean, that is, in its own way, horror. (laughs) (laughs) Like The Room, I believe this is a completely sincere attempt to make a film, and that's just what makes it mm. even stranger. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, when you've got those sort of so-bad-as-good movies, like, you know, um, Mega Shark versus Giant Octopus, and all these sorts of things, right? And what I think makes The Room just work is that The Room was never trying to be so bad as good. Like, I think it, the, the Room, it, you had a man that was trying to tell a sincerely tell a story, but he had neither the skill, the talent... Or the effort. I mean, he, by all accounts, half-assed the whole thing. <laughs> he just, he pumped, he funded the whole thing himself, as I think we all know, and he, he basically bought his dream, hired by, you know, skipping the whole process of uh, earning rewards. He just bought it. Something I was wondering from the biography uh, by Greg Sestero, sorry, his autobiography, um, Disaster Artist, You've got two sides of Tommy as an artist here because, yeah, on one hand, it looks like it's absolutely effortless, don't get me wrong. On the other, though, he paints this picture of a guy who maybe conflates a kind of rough-and-ready approach to raw talent. Like, he does a draft and goes, that'll do, you know, or does a draft and is so assured of how, how honest and vulnerable he's being with his writing 
that he doesn't really need to go back and change it. Yeah, I, I think you and I say that because I know that we've both watched on YouTube. Uh, there was a read-through of the script of The Room, and it was the original script before it got changed for the actual film. And holy God in heaven, there is some awfulness in that original script. And it's to the point where one of the act, the actor that's actually doing the Johnny Wiseau impression, he says, he does the whole, you're tearing me apart, Lisa. But then the actress that was playing Lisa elbows him. Because like, no, they have a self-imposed rule. You have to say it as it's written, including the punctuation. So we get the laughs of, I'm Ron Burgundy? And there's a point where the line was actually written originally, you're taking me apart, Lisa. <laughs> Just not right. got the same punch. That's right. Oh, God, at some point in the future, let's do one of these about the room. But not today, folks, because we are doing Hellraiser's part six to eight. Guys, I can't fucking wait to get talking about Hellseeker. Welcome to the worst nightmare of all. Reality. Which do you find more exhilarating? It's getting hot in here. The pleasure. It's perfect. I prefer pain. Hellseeker! This is the sixth Hellraiser film, and there's a bit of controversy as to whether this began life as a Hellraiser film or not. Co-writer Tim Day has assured people it did begin life as a Hellraiser script and that Clive Barker liked it. The thing is, I've seen absolutely no record of Clive Barker saying this anywhere. And it does make me wonder, does this really seem like a Hellraiser film to you, Alistair? Obviously I'm going to say no, um, because it isn't. Um, the, I mean, this is, um, this is your patchwork style storytelling where we're, we've got a script. It's not the one that we want, but it's the one that we've got and we're going to slap on a whole bits of pieces onto this to make it, uh, you know, quote unquote work. So we're going to get, we're going to get in the Cenobites, we're going to get in the box, we've got to get in Kirsty. but let's say if you removed from this story absolutely everything that was Hellraiser based, you've essentially got a remake, uh, a very loose remake of Jacob's Ladder mm. fundamentally. So I, I would say on the basis that it's much more a Jacob's Ladder remake than any kind of Hellraiser film. I don't believe this started as a Hellraiser film, just based on the empirical evidence that the film presents. Could you not also argue that potentially uh, Rick Bota, or whoever wrote this, was watching Hellraiser Inferno, and then went, hey, why don't we do a film just like this? Well... I might as well say this now. I've got a view on this trilogy of Rick Bota films where having... Because I said this, I know I said this in my last review when we talked about Hellraiser 5, and I said, after 4, where do you go? And I did say that Hellraiser 5 was a breath of fresh air because it changed, it, it redefined what a Hellraiser movie could be. And unfortunately, that sort of got run into the ground with the next three movies being remakes of 5, essentially, because they they do a different angle with five, they take a different route, and, I mean, I would defy anyone to say that that angle and that route was not also repeated in six, seven, and eight, but when you look at the scripts, because there's certainly, and 
analogies to what six, seven, and eight could have been as other films. And I might talk about all three of them as one here very quickly. Whereas I think if you remove all the Hellraiser aspects of them, again, you've you've still got a movie that functions. It's just not a Hellraiser movie. But mm-hmm. slapping Hellraiser padding onto this film, onto these films, plural, didn't quite make them Hellraiser films either. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Like, there's a bit of a beginning where we're getting the intro, you've got your cheesy guitar music, mm. but then you've got the box turning around slowly to say, ooh, this is Hellraiser. And yet, yeah. at the same time, the Hellraiser elements kind of bookend the movie, right? Because you mentioned mm-hmm. Kirsty. It was good seeing Kirsty again. Yeah, it was. However, it was a bit like Zendaya in, the, in, uh, in Dune, where when we see her, she's just walking very slowly and uh, gets some dialogue at the last part. Kirsty was, I think they just took some Kurt, they took some footage of Ashley Lawrence doing a Chanel advert or something, <laughs> uh, because she there's so little of her in the film, and I've got legacy issues with this film as well. I mean, it's great for them having a shout. I mean. When you say the words uncle and Frank together, you're like, oh, that reminds me of a much better film. Um, But with Kirsty being so underutilized and in the way that she is utilized as well, she's actually mishandled very badly. So, I mean, we might as well address this now. She's gone from a heroine who wants to save the life of her friends and family in films one and two to the world has kind of screwed her over. So she wants to get revenge, uh, petty revenge on Oh, it's petty. I mean, there is a plot, murder plot going on in this film as well. But she's trying to get revenge on her husband. The guy that her husband randomly decided to make the deal with and all of the women that her husband's cheating with, which is a lot, by the yeah, way. And she doesn't just uh, kill them either. She tortures them. You know, we see mm-hmm. the, the crime scenes. You're like... Curse to you. you! You didn't do this by half. Yeah, uh, Walsh. I mean, she had uh, the Cenobites as teachers. I mean, you know, <laughs> this bit with the guy's mate absolutely bamboozles me. You go, okay, he's taking all the personal costs since his wife's dying. He's taking all the risks since he's the one killing his wife, and yet, why the hell does he decide to give him some money? Fifty like percent of the money as well. Fifty yeah, percent of the money for something that's all him. It'd be like if I said to you guys, right, guys, I'm a uh, Thing to kill my wife, and you go, uh huh. And I go, but I tell you what, I'll give you guys a third of the money each. <laughs> and you go, what? Why? You're the one who's taking, he's going to do all this. And the way that his plan is, I'm going to get this box that opens a gateway to hell, and they'll make her open it. And you're like, well, why, why not just drive her off a bridge like what, like what we think the plan is? I mean, the, they never established that Trevor actually knows what the box is. Or how it functions. Now, obviously, Kirsty clearly does know how it works and functions. But then, like, she opens it out of spite. Hmm. Are, we, are we meant to think that she told him, maybe? That's the only way I can make this make sense in my head, As she goes, tell you what, it's this magic box, and they did a right old number on me when I was younger. And he goes, oh, yeah, I've just been offered this magic box by a homeless guy. I think I'm going to use this as a weapon. That's the only way I can make it make sense. Look, the flashbacks with Kirsty, like in the car, uh, at the dinner table, and in, I believe it's the marital bed. Those flashbacks, you catch snippets of them, but not enough. It's like trying to eavesdrop on a conversation while someone's punching you in the head. <laughs> 
Uh, okay, Jim, what did you think of this movie? Yeah, Kirsty was wasted. You, you're bringing back the protagonist yeah. from the first two films, so that's going to carry some weight for a start. And then you go and do that. It's it's really fragmented. Like you've already said, it's very similar to the previous film, Inferno. The first 20 minutes or so really frustrated me. Like you've, you've got this guy who has no idea what's going on. Like we think he's maybe got some sort of amnesia from the car accident, and then just interspersed with some random shocking, gory bits. It, it just it, it didn't land, and it didn't help that again, like Inferno, it, it, the protagonist isn't very likable. Yeah, there's there's a bit more mm. sympathy there because. You know, he's, as far as we're concerned at this point, he's been in an accident. His wife's missing. There's nobody. And you, you know there's that the Cenobites are somehow involved. It's a Hellraiser film, so you know there's some supernatural element to all this. But we're still in this mystery bit. So like the first half an hour, 20 minutes. And yeah, he, there is a bit of sympathy there, but he is generally not a likable guy. The more we're flashing back, the more we can see he was you know, promiscuous. He, he, he wasn't faithful and he was a bit of a shit. That being said, this film flew by for me. I, I can't dislike it. Again, much like Inferno, again, referring back to that. I mean, this may as well be a remake of it. Only, I guess he's a little bit more likable for a start. He's not a cop. He's in, I don't know, he works in the business office doing business statistics and <laughs> other ambitions. Yeah. I think we've had some trouble trying to work out what his job actually is. Crunch yeah. the numbers. Any numbers will do. It involves numbers, suits, and reports. Yep. And that's what we get from it. And and an affair with his yeah. boss. She, she, she's, she's still like, trying to like sexually assault him just after his wife died. <laughs> like, and he does say, my wife has just died. And like, it's like, it's, it's like they're coming back from a weekend trip. Like his wife died 7 p.m. Sunday yeah. afternoon and he's in work first thing the next day. And I remember what you were saying about Inferno Jim, where we have an unlikable protagonist well, let's call him an antagonist, if you will. And we're following that story, and he's horrible. We just actually want to see him suffer, so we do side with the Cenobites on this one. And at that time, I didn't say anything, but I thought, oh, I wonder how he takes the protagonist of Hellraiser 6, who's also unlikable. But I think the difference between Hellraiser 5 and 6 is that Hellraiser 5 told a much more succinct story, even though most of it is in the dream sequence. We knew the main character was a bad guy right from the get-go because he had his internal monologues where he said so himself. This guy, it's gradually revealed that he's... He, or you think he's... Oh, he might be a bit of a dick. Oh, he is a bit of a dick. <laughs> or he's even a bigger bit of a dick. And it's just... He's like all the layers down in his character. It's just nothing but this. <laughs> oh, I might need to rephrase that slightly. But um, you know what I'm trying to say? He's um, an absolute terrible person. And I have to say, I mean, how many hours are there in the day? He's having an affair with at least three women and married. Well, yeah, because he's got the t two different neighbours. One who flirts with him about his dead wife going, ah, oh, yeah, you're lacking the female <laughs> touch nowadays. You're like, what? His wife just died. You've got the boss. You have the misuse as well. They've got his wife. This guy is getting sex constantly in this movie. 
You know, I wrote down in my notes that every woman in a five-mile radius seems to have a massive wide <laughs> for this guy. And it's never made clear why. So I think there's maybe an aspect of male fantasy in the script here of a guy just having... I mean, I don't know if the women really fulfill different archetypes. You get the sort of dominatrix boss, the sort of masseuse who has a, a mothering, loving touch, and then you get the young, rebellious girl who lives next door. So, I mean, all the affairs that he has, they are very sort of different in that aspect. Uh, and how he's... I mean, do these women all know about each other? Do they at least all know that he is slash was married um, and they were fine with it? And it's not realistic. If you know what I mean? It's clearly, if you're having, mm. I mean, how much time do you have to put aside for an affair? <laughs> for th- three? But he picks, he picks uh, neighbors and a boss, mate. This is intelligent I, design. Uh, I, I mean, well, that's, there's that's that, that's I suppose. Where coming from with that. And I, I did note that it felt like a lot of this film, every scene was a slight variation on the same thing we've constantly seen happening over and over again. And as we finally get to the big reveal and twists at the end, we find out this guy's been living through a hell that Pinhead's putting him through. So obviously all of this suggestiveness that the encounters he's having, these are all part of his own personal hell because you noticed how every time the protagonist gets in an uncomfortable situation he will wake up somewhere else regardless of what it is i need to jump in here because what i did was on my watch through my most recent watch of hellraiser 6 i counted the amount of times that trevor wakes up 13 (laughs) 13 times he wakes up and quite a few of them are in very close proximity to each other it's it's very tiresome because you don't you stop trusting that what you're watching is real or will have mm. any real impact on the story. Oh, I agree. There's absolutely no dramatic stakes once you get that pattern. Yeah, uh, and you get to the end with Pinhead, and you have effectively neutralized all dramatic tension by that point. And the I mean, the thirteen—that's <laughs> so many. I want to make a quick deviation here to the Nicolas Cage remake of The Wicker Man. And there's a, one of the funniest wake-ups in that I've ever seen. He's trapped on the island. Plane comes down. He runs down to the jetty, but then he sees the, the pilot's dead. And I think it's his daughter that's trapped under the, uh, the jetty the, between the wood planks. He sees her. But then he wakes up. But it's a false scare because then he wakes up again and goes, Oh, God damn it. But at that point, if he wakes up twice and he's on the jetty, that would imply that when he, if he fell asleep, he, he did actually see the plane come into land, <laughs> which means he ran down to the jetty to beat the plane and then fell asleep. We have a now, similar thing here. You know Alison, the doctor? We find out at yeah. the end that she's a real person, but Trevor wouldn't have met yeah. her yet. So you're like, oh, fuck. How has he got some sort of psychic link to the real world here? He's able to see the real doctor who speaks to Kirsty. I wonder if that was Bota's intention of doing another subversion well, or if it was just they were running out of casting crew. I creep. actually liked that little bit at the end. It, it reminded me of yeah. a few of the like, more supernatural films of the 80s that I, I can remember, even Beetlejuice, because you've, uh, you've got Trevor's cadaver lying on the stretcher. 
and all of these characters that are working for the coroner, the police, the, the recovery unit, all of that, these are all characters that have appeared throughout the film. So perhaps it's his soul or his consciousness slowly slipping away, but taking fragments of these people that have recovered in from the river. And I thought that was a neat little mm. touch at the end. It, it, yeah, it just it resonated with me for some reason, but it, it was a nice little beat. I'd say the movie's not, it is certainly not completely without merit. And maybe just to continue on that thread, uh, I'll talk about some of the good parts of the film that I did actually quite enjoy. Um, this will be a trait throughout the seventh and eighth films as well with Rick Bota, where um, in discussions with David, I was told that he was actually a, a music video director. And like that was like the little, the key I needed. That's like, I get it now. That That's how he can direct. Uh, some effective sequences in amongst what is often quite superfluous padding to these films. Um, Cause quite a few of them are like 45 minute episodes stretched out into uh, feature length movies with Hellraiser six, Hell Seeker. We've got a sequence where the boss comes around to his flat and she's, you know, doing her dominatrix thing on him, but then he tells her to leave, and she does. Yet the camera's set up, and the camera is hooked up to the television. Yes. And he sees himself mm. and her on the television, waves his hand in front of the camera, and sees his... It, like, the, the camera captures the image of his hand. So the camera's filming something live. It's live action. But he's seeing something on the screen that's not happening in real life, because the camera looks to the chair and it's empty. That, I think, was a very effective sequence. I really did enjoy that. Two Cenobites, of course, turn up um, that we've never seen before. And I think this is really, with Hellraiser 5 as well, the start of we're going to make up different Cenobites for each movie. Uh, So we get two two new ones. I think one of them is called The Surgeon. Um, There's the one in the head brace that's uh, got metal ocular things covering the eyes but um, that sequence I really did enjoy that bit that was effective there was a few neat little touches like that throughout I think I mean out of all of these I think this one is probably stylistically the better Uh, if you can say it goes as far as that Mm. (laughs) but uh, yeah there there were little things like that Um, yeah that that was one bit that I I particularly noticed Um, I mean, f- the warehouse bit as well was pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. Same, same with the puzzle, the puzzle, the the puddle sequence as well. We you know we see with pinhead, pinhead yeah. The, yeah, pinhead and the, the puddle. I thought bits like that just there's a potential there. You know, this guy knows what he's doing with visualization. You can you can you can frame a scene well. I just thought the storytelling was absolutely nice. Yeah, yeah. A, a lot of what we see could have been concluded quite easily within the hour. Like we, we do get a lot of repetition in this. Yeah, as I say, even like slight variations on something that's happened before, but we're getting maybe a tiny bit more context in this scene from when we did last time. So it, that that was the frustrating part. It felt like, you know, you just wanted to grab him by the shoulders and shake and, you know, just get to the point already. Because <laughs> there's a lot of content, but was, as Alice was saying, it's not very substantial. You know, this is a really episodic approach you've got here like there's not much connective tissue it's just scene after scene after scene mm. which we know isn't going to have much of an overall impact on the plot because it's we're trained not to believe anything that's happening yeah. in it, you know mm. i think yeah like you could level that partly at inferno as well 
that both of these films, they kind of explain away some of the more annoying aspects with the plot twist at the end. But I think of Inferno, you actually had a lot more heart in it than you did in this. I think Inferno, mm-hmm. you had this idea of a guy who, because of a traumatic childhood of his own, he'd gone on to repeat this with his own kids. And with this, I think the only heart of this movie relies upon us having a kind of an inbuilt goodwill for Kirsty Cotton, who mm. barely even features. Like, potentially, we've got something intriguing here, because you've got a guy who doesn't really know his own story, who can't trust his own memories, and we're experiencing the world with him. So there should be a rapport there. You know, he's our way into it. We're confused like he is, and boy, does this guy look confused right the course yeah. of the movie. But it's so one note. Like, Dean Winters... He's not a relatively good actor in other things. He's he's the vulture in, Bru- in Brooklyn Nine-Nine, you know? He's really good in 30 Rock as well, where he's doing these comedic roles. And just here, I don't know if he just didn't have much to work with. We, he didn't, but I don't know if that was the main problem. But, like, he just plays it like a blank slate. Like, nothing particularly, uh, particularly bothers him. You know, he sees, like, his friend commits suicide, and he's like... Uh, you know, you, you come across he's, a dead body. He's he's permanently just miffed throughout yeah. this film. There's, there's even a bit at the beginning where he's laying on a, a gurney in the hospital. Um, we're we're led to believe that he's there following the car accident, but then it slowly transpires that this isn't the first time he's been in. And just the way he sits up from there, he's just got a kind of like this half smirk on his face, despite the fact he's meant to be really distressed at this point. <laughs> it's just, the, oh, that's the shot you're keeping for this bit, is it? He, yeah, he's he's not quite in sync with where he's supposed to be at emotionally. Yeah, and it's in stark contrast to everyone else in the movie who's just really pissed off all the time. <laughs> everyone, everyone else is like, I didn't mind me to note this. Like everybody acts suspicious. Everybody, like his Kirsty Cotton acts suspicious of him, not without cause. And um, the masseuse was wicked suspicious. Mm. The the neighbor that he's having an affair with the girl next door, but she has her own boyfriend who's also wicked suspicious. And in Hellraiser Five, we did have this sort of cenobite like creature that didn't dress like the other cenobites but obviously it pulled its face off and he saw that it was obviously detective joseph underneath and you had something similar to that going about in this film with like a stocking over its head and he would just appear randomly yeah. in the background and look menacing mm. and i don't think that ever came to anything really I, f- I think that was to indicate that yeah he is involved with the Cenobites somehow. Maybe he's used the puzzle box at some mm. point and we're just building up to when that has happened or, you know, something has happened. But as you say, everyone being suspicious, I think plays into the reveal at the end. But again, yeah, everything is played on a bit too much. It goes on a bit too long. But I think once everything ties together, it works quite well. It goes in its favour. All of the characters, you know, have been involved in this guy's life. And we know by the end that everything we've watched up until this point is him getting his ironic punishment, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just a shame that he's just such an uninteresting character. Yes. I mean, I think Thorn had more had more of a backing story here. Whereas here we go, well, he, he didn't love Kirsty. You're like, well, OK, we can later on we can understand this because it turns out she's torturing people but <laughs> why we don't we, we don't really know why her marriage was breaking apart we just know that he was shagging around a bit yeah that i mean we don't know that he knows that she was torturing other people 
I mean, presumably when she opened mm. the box to begin with, that's when she made the deal mm. with Pinhead, which mm. unfolds in a very weird way. It's like, no more deals, Kirsty. This time I come for you. And she's like, how about I make a deal with you? That's <laughs> interesting. Well, yeah, well, she randomly goes, five souls. And he's like, yeah, done. Yeah. And she's like, shit. And she just said two. <laughs> you know? uh, yeah, okay. So obviously he doesn't know that she's a killer. But the point I'm getting at is like, as an audience, we stop sympathizing with her. Mm. But we don't have any idea why their relationship got yes, to the extent that explained. he wants to kill her. So, yeah, I, I just want to mention a couple of really funny things in this film. The two cops who are both going, a wife killer, you know, both outright accusing him. The reveal that those two cops are actually the same person. And you're like, why is that a twist? <laughs> Both of them have accused him of murder. Maybe you could have like a good cop and a bad cop so it works. I mean, they do refer to one of them in dialogue as being a softie, but he's absolutely not a softie. No. On the grounds, he's also accused him of murder. Like, these guys, they're like the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern of the Hellraiser world, you know? They're basically replaceable. And <laughs> I will say, right, so, so just to jump in quickly with Detective Lang and Detective Givens, because they, they try and do the thing where you never see the two of them together. And there is a sequence where he's in the police station with... Just as a quick side note as well with the police station, police brutality is very much at the forefront <laughs> of, uh, of this the movie. Taser in the neck. And there's like the scene with the guy with the bat on and he's just battering someone to a bloody pulp. And But these are just these creepy scenes that are just off askew and have nothing really to do with the main plot at all. There's also Detective Lang. They sit down. They have a quick chat. I don't think you did it but you might have did it. <laughs> and then they shake hands to go. But then, of course, because Detective Givens can't be in the same scene as Detective Lang because they're one of the same, Detective Lang holds his hand out to indicate a different detective. This is Detective Givens. And the, the camera just sort of pans quickly to like a security guard sat at his desk reading a newspaper. And it's never quite made clear but there's nobody there that he indicated. It's, it's just a really weird sequence. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, ooh, classic Boda That's a great twist. As we're getting to the crescendo, there is a bit in his office as well where uh, the detective turns up where he's like telling his friend, what did you tell him? You didn't tell him that I killed her, did you? you know? And then he sat at his desk and was like, oh, shit. Yeah. Um, so they, have a, they go through the same thing again, I suppose. And then as he turns around and walks away, the other detective's there. That that was, again, mm. but at, at this point mm. you think, oh, well, you know, everything's descending into shit anyway, so he, he's obviously mm -hmm. in something or other. Yeah. Well, what's weird is we know from earlier in the film that this is a place where the CCTV cameras have audio as well. Yeah, yeah. where his boss is trying to harass him I think it's that bit and he sat there watching a workplace like uh, workplace shenanigans on his monitor and he's got the audio but he's not got headphones in <laughs> by the way because the, obviously CCTV that would filter through to the security guard's office the things that those guys must be seeing <laughs> happening in that office and I want to tell you guys another great bit my personal mm -hmm. favourite bit mm -hmm. of the movie right the friend in it, when he comes up to him, he's got the gun already. He's going, oh, where you, where you been? Yeah, I've been looking all over for you. Right. Points the gun at him saying, you flaked on me. You know, you were, you know, you were meant to be, we had a deal. We we're meant to be killing the wife together. And he goes, 
you know, I'm not going to jail, jail. I'm going to go to hell where I'll see you. And then shoots himself <laughs> in the fucking head. Like, he's trying to intimidate him by killing himself. Like, oh, I'm going to think twice about that, you know. If that's what he's willing to do to him, think of what he's going to do to me. And we give his punch sign effect, like, like, first time I watched that, I remember just thinking, what a fucking idiot. <laughs> Killing himself in an intimidating manner, which, by the way, it's a bit of a signature of Rick Bowe, because that happens in the next one as well. The guy leaps in front of mm, the yeah. subway. Yes. It's, it's such a bizarre sequence, because he's like, it, he comes off and says, I've been looking around for you everywhere. So he's been looking around with him. If, and if it's premeditated suicide, was he <laughs> looking for the guy to kill himself in front of him? Like, I want to kill myself in front of Trevor, just so he gets the this message. It's going to hurt yeah, me like, more than it hurts you. <clears throat> <laughs> like, like, shoot, I thought you could at least shoot Trevor and then himself, you know? <laughs> no, no. It's just shoots himself. Like, it's such, a, it's, it's such a stupid deterrent. Like, like Trevor's like, well, you know what? That's the biggest liability in the case, Dad, now, because he could have grasped me up. <laughs> and, I mean, the evidence would be solid. This guy actually did shoot himself. So, all the evidence, forensic wise, will point to that. And also, Trevor now gets to keep the other 50% of their apparent deal, where he's going to yeah. give his friend 50% mm-hmm. to know the story. Well, he is intimidated, though. But... <laughs> <laughs> what? No, he just looks confused. Like he's like, hmm. Yeah. He's very confused throughout the whole film. Even He's confused from the very beginning, right up until the very end, when finally the pin Cenobites chains with the hooks do start ripping out and catching his body and pulling him pulling him apart and he's got the the sort of tugged face effect that i mean he's still confused there because remember at this point uh, pinhead is actually explaining the plot to him as he's being tortured so he's perhaps not in the best position to receive that information yeah, and, and at that point i do feel like that went too quickly considering everything we've been through for the previous what 75 minutes uh, on on a constant loop almost, and then mm-hmm. that's over in a flash. I did feel a bit short change with that. Though I must say, I think that was probably the most impressive part, effects wise, uh, out of the last few films we'd seen up to this point. I mm. think it was definitely yeah. a leap in the effect of the effects. If you know what I mean, as I, yeah, I was saying yeah, previously about how visceral and manky the original films were compared to how I, I, don't, I suppose clean it then started to look, it felt like we were going back to a, a better visual style in terms of the gore and the grottiness. So yeah, that, that, I like that a bit as well. Yeah, because I mean, even at the beginning, you've got the brain surgery going on, which is quite nasty. As, Al- as Alistair's pointed out to me before, for using a dirty needle during that scene, which just adds to the kind of, this kind of feeling of griminess. Mm. Yeah, I think they're trying to parallel Pinhead with that as well. I mean, the size of the needle they're using is very similar to when you would see uh, in, in 2 and 3 him like taking the, the pins out of his head, like at the altar in, in 3. It, mm. it reminded me of that. In fact, there was a few, I think there was a few nods to the previous films in there. I was just about to say that with the brain surgery sequence, and we're seeing it from Trevor's perspective this time with the brain surgery sequence. That reminded me of Hellraiser 2. But in that film, we're, we're with the surgeon, who is Dr. Chenard, uh, working on someone's brain as he's um, espousing 
quotes from the Book of Wisdom. <laughs> and in this film, of course, we're seeing it from Trevor's perspective. And the people are blatantly saying, we're going to start poking him in the most distressing parts of the brain. <laughs> and then they do. And it, it does come across quite, it is quite an effective sequence in that one. Just quickly, I want to bring up another sequence of this film that when I realized, if you think it through, it's a bit crazy, where the detective, and this is Detective Lang, at the crime scene at the very end of the film, where we're presumably back in the real world after all the dream sequence stuff, he has a plastic bag yeah. with the lament configuration in it. And it says that your husband was clutching, we found his body and he was clutching this in the river. And he looks around to make sure no one hears him. And he gives Kirsty Cotton back this crucial piece of evidence <laughs> and lets her go with it. And we're also meant to believe that the car went off the road into the river, but she shot him whilst he was driving. Yeah, that bit I didn't quite like, get. Like, clearly, there's a gunshot wound in his face. <laughs> now, and, unless Kirsty had said to them, like, he was looking around for me all over the place, and then he you know he just randomly shot himself in the oh, head. Yes, and, yes, yes. Yeah, do, yes. Do, do, do you know what I mean? Unless, unless they make it like his partner in crime yeah. had shot himself, yeah, just to make that, sure that, that joke lands. mentions he shoots himself, but that, that just felt so unlikely to happen at that point. It's just like Whilst why he was would you shoot yourself in the face as you're about to drive into a watery grave anyway? Just, just making sure, you know, cover, making sure all the bases are covered. I suppose. <laughs> well, that, that's like, but as we just discussed, that's him saying, "Oh yeah, you know, I'm willing to do anything to you. Watch what I'll do to myself." <laughs> oh, I'm gonna shoot myself in the head, drive off a river, drive off a bridge into a river, and then eat an eel. Yeah. <laughs> mm. Oh God, yeah. Well, they, 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 I like the bit where we take the fish out and put yeah. the evidence yeah. bag as well. That really pleased me. <laughs> Evidence. As if, like that could have been. Your Honor, I want to draw your attention to Exhibit F. <laughs> Maybe the eels are suspect as well. It wasn't the gunshot wound that killed him. It was suffocation by eel. That was a pretty neat little callback, though, because you have that bit where he's in his kitchen or wherever, in, in his apartment, mm -hmm. where he suddenly starts choking. Like, we think maybe it's yeah. like an anxiety thing, but then he throws up that eel, which again we see later on. That was the sequence, uh, just to go back to that note I had of everybody's suspicious, because yeah. he keeps looking out his window thinking there's someone there, and when we we see the, the masked man again, leads to nothing, but then another time he looks out that window, see this woman walks in, whips her top yes. off, <laughs> and then they see randomly, and then they see each other, and then she's like annoyed and tries to like, she closes a curtain, but it's like a transparent curtain that covers <laughs> nothing. <laughs> What is the point in this scene? I've got another couple of wee points to, to give here. The Cenobites are basically there as props. They're there to dress up a scene, but they don't really do anything when they're there except just kind mm. of stand there. I do agree that the chain yeah. sequence at the end looks cool, but I just hope the Cenobites, there's even less point to them in this than there was in Inferno. And also, there's something, this will come up again in the next film, where... Uh, they go like, oh, what's the difference between between alive and dead? And I think Rick Bolter likes this thing of having opposites and implying they're the same. Like, in this, they go, good and evil, light and dark, you know, opposite sides of the same coin. It's as if the film is presenting itself as 
both a dry and damp squib. Yeah. <laughs> I just want to quickly say this just now, actually, about the Cenobites in particular and how... Um, there, and this is not something that occurred to me until this most recent watch through where we have, I mean, the original four Cenobites, he had Pinhead was talking and so was the female Cenobite. She was talking as well. Um, and Butterball and Chatterer were functionally, they were like the muscle of the group, if you will, to use sort of maybe mafia terms. But ever since the Cenobites were dispatched in two, Pinhead comes back in three and essentially from four onwards, we're getting a different clique of Cenobites per movie. And Hellraiser 6 is no exception. We get different Cenobites in this movie that we I don't think we see the Surgeon ever again. But not from basically four onwards, we never see another talking Cenobite. They're all sort of mute mm-hmm. as well in the background. I mean, we had of the talking ones, there was J.P. Monroe and Terry in three in one and two, obviously the female Cenobite, and in four it was Angelique. Now, basically, the female Cenobite is the only one that was talking before we knew anything about the character. Angelique, J.P. Monroe, and Terry, oh, I'm sorry, and Camerahead as well, actually. All of them, all of them we saw as either a demon with Angelique or in human form beforehand. So we got to see them transition and then become talking Cenobites. From four onwards, none of the Cenobites ever talk. None of them. And I think it's just because they don't want to take lines away from Doug Bradley's pinhead. They just keep him. You get all the lines. You're the literally the talking head of evil in these are films. You, are you sure we didn't get... I thought the female Cenobite in part eight said something just so we get the tribute to the original. Doesn't she speak very briefly? It's done as an homage to the female Cenobite... I mean, we'll, we'll talk about it more when we get to that yeah. point, but it's she's not a Cenobite. She was oh, not okay. transformed. She was injured in the way that is meant to evoke the female sen- the imagery of the female Cenobite. Um, oh, but yeah, she, I mean, yeah, she was I'm not... Following them. Yeah, she was not, as from what I can... T- I, mean, I mean, you can interpret these films any bloody way and it'll still make as much sense. I don't think she was a Cenobite, so, yeah. We'll get to that later, but I take that as the kind of the transitioning phase where it was beginning or something, but... Mm-hmm. Uh, because for suddenly all they've suddenly all got bad intentions towards their friend, but yeah, they have, yeah, we'll get to party. Um, yeah. Speaking of which, let's get finished up with part six. Let's do our star ratings. Jim, what star rating would you give part six? Uh, believe it or not, I'm going to give it a three out of five. I yeah, it's it's a bit messy, a bit. <laughs> <laughs> As I say, it, it whizzed by in no time, and I uh, as frustrating as it was. I found it as engaging and I actually quite enjoyed it. I liked the reveals at the end and I liked the way everything neatly tied together. And I also liked the little nods throughout as well. I remember like seeing a a string of CDs at Trevor's cubicle in his office, (laughs) similar to the same, you know, what the uh, Cenobite gets lodged in his head in Hellraiser 3. The on the nose, the on the nose stuff in the acupuncture room where she's, sticking all the needles in him and then Pinhead appears and jabs that massive one through the back yeah. of his head. Just little things like that all made up. Not a great film, but an enjoyable one. I like to wave those needles have vanished while we were having sex. Yeah. Well. <laughs> it's convenient. <isn't> it? <laughs> there was some bad continuity there. Uh, Alistair, what about yourself? How many stars would you give this one? I'm going to give it two. I mean, it's... There are some ideas in there and... 
Um, but unfortunately for me, it's all squandered potential. Like, Kirsty Cotton could have been mm. so much better utilised. Um, the the story itself, I mean, the bones of the story, there's a good idea in there, but the, just the meat was all wrong of this, if that makes any sense. I think I'm using the right analogy for a Hellraiser film. Mm. But it's, it's because <clears throat> I counted, he, he wakes up 13 times. And basically, it's the laziest form of Deus Ex Machina. The, the writers will write themselves into a hole to build up tension, drama, excitement. How does he get out of this? He wakes up. And for there to be 13 in one film, that's a lot. Yeah, but actually, to bring this full circle, during the Grudge remake, you have a lot of this as well. Like the most recent Grudge, you get a lot of mm-hmm. this as well, where it's it's act three, and you're still getting these vanishing ghost jump scares, mm. which you would normally get in act one of the film. And it just means that we're not, we're, we don't feel particularly engaged because we don't believe anything of consequence can happen to this guy. Yeah. Uh, um, I'm going to give this one two and a half. The thing is, it's, it isn't as good a film as Inferno, but I'd be lying if I said that I didn't enjoy watching it more. I don't think this film works for the reasons it's supposed to. I think you've got this kind of very fast-paced approach to filmmaking where it's almost like an extended music video. And while you do have some striking images, there's so much goofiness to it. Like uh, Kersey suddenly becoming a murderer just like that. You know, you've got the, uh, the, t- the weird twist of the cops both being the same person. This inexplicable sexual appeal that Trevor has of everyone who meets him. What is his appeal? Yeah, the guy shooting himself in an intimidating manner, like, all of these just make it quite an enjoyable movie. And I did like seeing Kirsty coming back in it, even though I thought she was completely misused, so... I mean, I say that, it was good seeing her again in the film series, it was, I won't lie. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it's not a good film, but I, I, I think it also went past really quickly, and I found it... I find it to be relatively fun. To give my last word here to uh, Pinhead himself, fertile ground, but rather mundane. Yes. <laughs> and on that, let's move on to Deader. Whoever you are, you were meant to find me today. There is no turning back. And above all, don't open the box. Please do it for us. You would be this is the seventh Hellraiser and yet another straight to video one. At this point of the series, the lore is getting as messy as a Cenobite's web search history. This is maybe the most boring film of the series for me. And I'll tell you why. Uh, this is one of those movies where we have this half-hour bit, which is doing the Bolta thing again of, oh, what's real? What's fantasy? But we already know the character's dead because we've watched her die. And the story that she's discovering is one that we know from the beginning because we see an abusive older person who's no longer there and we know that she takes shit off nobody. So we can assume from that that she probably killed this guy. And yet we watch her struggle with this moment of, revelation for about 25 minutes towards the end the plot just grinds to an absolute halt like eh, 
as we watch her go, oh yes, this horrible thing that I did that nobody in the audience will negatively judge me for doing because we all hate the father as much as she did. So basically, I think this is the single most, it's not the worst Hellraiser film, but it's the most boring Hellraiser film in the series. Discuss. Maybe not. There are moments where I did find myself checking my watch. But uh, to say it's boring, no. Um, The subtitle for a start is ridiculous. I know it relates to a certain cult in the film. But uh, still, why it's called Deader and not Midnight Golf Train, I don't know. I mean, that whole (laughs) subplot was wild. An underground train... Well, half of an underground train that doubles as a goth disco sex club. Uh, it just, I, I think Rick Bota must be missing the year 2000 at this point. I mean, it looks, uh, it just screams Y2K when she steps on that train. <laughs> yeah. I think this film set in the 1980s, to be honest, because they sent each other videos. That's true, and I don't think it's got very modern aesthetic. Like for me, nah, this, I, I, I just I don't think it's I don't think it's seen to be set in present day. Like it, this well, is two thousand five, and nobody yes. has a mobile phone. It's two thousand five, but I think it's it's low budget. And it is Eastern Europe, remember? <laughs> <laughs> but they they, they yeah, have the just, camera filter set to Cold War for this one. <laughs> Despite all the convincing accents <laughs> and the obviously authentic uh, newspaper office at the beginning. Yeah. This is Eastern Europe he filmed it in. Cinema magic. Yep, uh, Romania, wasn't it? And yes, yeah, like you, you yeah. can tell they've gone to Romania because the first, what, five minutes, it's quite bright. I said probably an orange sort of glow mm-hmm. to it. As soon as we get to uh, Bucharest, it's, it's grey and blue. <laughs> I love that she gets the train to Bucharest from yeah. London. Which wasn't obviously London. Though, um, <laughs> no, the whole film, it was all filmed in uh, yeah, like, but I mean, obviously, the uh, the the, uh, the publication she worked for was called the London Underground, but that could have been set anywhere, to be fair. Like, the people working there, the, the guy running the show mm-hmm. was annoyingly English, but um, yeah, that could have been set anywhere, but I did like. The, the article she was working on at the beginning. I mean, it was some hard-hitting journalism of how to be a crack whore. Yeah, like, we're told she's an amazing journalist. <laughs> Everyone's like, oh, yeah, she's really good, you know, great with the words, raw talent, etc. Just like, ju- ju- you know, just like uh, Rick Bota. But at the same time, the, uh, or Tommy Wiseau, the thing is, this kind of talent she's meant to have She's she's using the word crack whore in a headline. Like she's even crack whore in a headline, and and she's punching down in that yeah. article clearly. Like in two thousand five, I don't believe that even the sun would put that. In the headline. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, um, that opening was interesting. I mean, obviously, it's uh, a bit of a red herring, it's supposed to be misleading. But I did notice something um, about the texture on the wall behind where Amy supposedly woke up and started taking her photos of this crack then. It was textured just like Pinhead's head. So it, it, it didn't uh-huh. have me questioning whether she's woken up already in her own hell again, just like the previous couple mm-hmm. of films we've had. 
Uh, well, I mean, we 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 definitely know the point that she enters it during the course of this movie. Oh yeah, no, she 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 finds the uh, the uh, puzzle box in the host this, film. yeah. This film does give us some information that six didn't. That we see the point of box opening. Is that what she's in? I thought she entered hell from the moment that the uh, the deaders kill her. I thought Pinhead was just coming out for a bit of a bit of a natter at that point. I mean, with Rick Wells, there's so many dream sequences that, I mean, anything can be true. But my, I mean, I'll have to say this with all three Rick Bota films, my interpretation, and just insert those words in front of everything I say, um, is that, like, she opens the box and then the hooks come out and grab her and by the head. But then we have Pinhead saying, you've got nothing to worry about. Like, he gives a really odd speech like he's not after her he's after this other guy that we'll talk about shortly i'm sure but um yeah the, the hooks have come out they got her by the head she's bleeding from the brain and it's okay you got nothing to worry about it's one of those tonally really weird mixed messages mm-hmm. that this film there uh, that comes out just a bit the the beginning the intro of the film um i just want to mention all the crash zooms when the, as you say, Jim, the annoyingly English guy has her in his office. Yeah. Here's a video. Yeah. <laughs> Watch this video. And we do constant crash zooms of the video and constant crash zooms on the actress Carrie Whirr, who I'm a big fan of because she was Agent Tanya in Red Alert 2. <laughs> and uh, she's in this film playing what I would say is charitably a less great <laughs> role. But um, by the way, the. The girl in the video, she she holds, and I, we're meant to be watching a snuff film here when, I don't know if this is trying to tap into something like the Faces of Death uh, DVD series or anything like that, but she's lying on her back, she's on the sort of a Teflon um, plastic covering, and she's got this massive gun to her head, and everyone's stressing out, and that we get so many shots from different angles of that gun to her head that I'm wondering how many cameras are in the room at the time? And it's all, the way it's all edited together, like how many people are filming this? Because um, you would assume it would just be the one person mm. with the camera. It, it, it must be at least five. It reminds five. me of Star Trek Four, where they're watching footage of the previous film. <laughs> <laughs> I know what you're saying. It's like, oh, was, was that on CCTV? <laughs> of the outside of the yeah. ship blowing up? <laughs> Yeah. Uh, that reminds me of, uh, did you guys ever see the movie Captivity with uh, Alicia Kaufman? No. Well, I'm going to give you guys a bit of a plot twist spoiler here. Um, Go for it. We find out the people who are torturing her, keeping her here, for two brothers. The reason this makes no sense is the video that reveals it shows both of them in it and the camera's moving. She's like, <laughs> two brothers and the cameraman that they can do all this stuff. <laughs> or, or camera person, I should say. But <laughs> uh, oh man, this movie though, like, I'm going to make myself sound really stupid here. But can any of you guys actually explain to me what the deaders' plan here was, right? Because they're going, all right. So we want to open this box because I, I feel like I should take over hell. Now, there's a few things to keep in mind about this. Number one, they are incapable of opening the box, which has never presented an issue for anyone up until this point. Number two. They want people to be dead to open the box. Number three, their plan is this. They give her, the, they stab her, she, then they bring her back to life, and then she opens the box. But for some reason, when she chucks a box across the room 
which opens it, they go, no! Which is surely the one thing they want her to fucking do. And then when uh, Pinhead comes up, he goes, oh yeah, you thought you could take over hell. <laughs> no. And then kills everyone in the room, right? <laughs> so, and then for some reason dies when she stabs herself, despite her entire arc has been about moving on from her demons and finding a reason to live. Honestly, what am I missing? Explain this to me as if I'm five. What the fuck oh, happens in this film? My interpretation of that is the <laughs> deaders are trying to get an army together to take over from the Cenobites. Uh, I, I assume. Um, if I could jump in, I just quick from what I took from this is that the deaders, they all want to, to do the sacrificial self-killing of well, themselves, and then bring themselves back to life. But that's sort of done as sort of a fight club style thing where you join this club and then there's like an initiation. And obviously that's the initiation. Um, the Now I should say that there are, this film links in with the fourth film where there is a mm-hmm. family who, like the Lerm Le Manchant, who made the box initially and he's a cursed bloodline. And we're looking at a member of that bloodline, that lineage in this film. Now, when I said this to David, I'll pass this to yourself as well, Jim, when we watched Hellraiser 4, do you remember how when the, the, when it was present day, we had a section in that was set, I think it was 1995, and the, the man in that section, he had a son. Yeah. And I'm just wondering if we're supposed to believe that that son is the Lerm, Le Marchant bloodline man in this I mean, film. it could be. Um, it just mentions that he is of that lineage. But mm-hmm. I just think it's kind of getting to that point in, well, to, to put it similarly to the recent Star Wars sequels, everything's got to be connected somehow just because. Mm-hmm. You know, it, yeah. It's not yeah. necessarily that kid from Bloodline, but you know, because it's mm-hmm. a sequel, we have to link it to this one. Because we have to. <laughs> I mean, this guy could have been mm. anyone for what it's worth. It, for me, it had no impact on yeah. anything that had happened in this film whatsoever. I would also say that the... I, I don't think that... Sorry to interrupt, but I don't think the deaders are actually fully aware of what the Marchant's plan is. Ah, yeah, that, that's, that he's, comes... He's, he's wanting to get them to kill themselves, but they're joining this club because essentially what they said is once you're dead, you can't die yeah. again. So he's attracting people who want immortality. It's clear there's ulterior motives from him. I mean, the, the guy's shady mm-hmm. as anything from the get-go. Yeah. Then, though, the thing is, because the idea that once you're dead, then you can't, you can't die again. So that would make sense, the idea of trying to build up an army. But he's also wrong, right? Because the thing is, yeah. whether they could die or not, and I guess we don't necessarily know if they die, what we do know is that Pinhead's harder than them because he's got superpowers and they don't. Pinhead does actually kill them all. <laughs> Yeah, it's just if this guy if this guy had his absolutely perfect uh, ending, then what actually happens here? So he go, okay, we've killed her, brought her back from the dead, and then for some reason, now that she's back from the dead, we've made her kill herself again, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and we now have this box, a box that he was not planning on opening. Yet he also because he gets pissed off when she opens it, but a box that he also explicitly says is his gateway to hell, which he intends to take over. I just think at this point, like, the motivations just sort of fell apart for me. It wasn't clear what the baddie wanted. And it wasn't hugely clear, like, what the the ethos of his group was. Yeah, it's a battle that's been raging for centuries, because we know that from part four. 
But the the uh, that bit of exposition, Pinhead's basically just there for exposition hmm. in this film. But that bit where Pinhead's like, ah, your ancestor was a toy maker. It's not built up upon enough for us to know well what's the nature of his conflict because Pinhead comes out, says this, taunts him, kills about nine people, and then hmm. fucks off because for some reason her killing herself closes the box again. Yeah, I, I see it. Um, have you seen the film Dogma? where there's a loophole for getting back into heaven. Mm. I, yeah, I, I, I see it as kind of along those lines. What they're doing with this dedicult is somehow harvesting souls, which is charging the lament configuration or the version of it that they have here. And for some reason, possibly explained, and I've lost it in the you know, tirade of, oh, I'm in trouble. Oh, no, I've just woken up here. <laughs> Um, <laughs> Pinhead can't directly do anything about it. So once Amy has opened the puzzle box, he's like, well, I've been looking on your CV and I can see you're investigating these people I'm coincidentally attached to. So mm. here's what you're going to do for me. And so we go through like an, an hour of, is this real? What's happening here? Am I dead? Is she dead? Who's this guy? And it all ties up to this court in the end, somewhat vaguely, but she mm-hmm. is a vessel for Pinhead. And if she charges the box with her soul rather than completing it physically, then it'll go in the favor of the, the merchant guy. If she opens yeah. the box physically, then it'll unleash Pinhead on them. So I, I, it's something like that, but it's still vague. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, to be fair, that's uh, that's a pretty good extrapolation. (laughs) (laughs) There are some effective sequences in the films that I quite like. My favourite actually being the the knife in the back that she pulls out but continues Mm. bleeding from. This is, I think, after she's... She is actually a deader at this point. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah that was deader is a bit cool. silly, but that was a very good sequence. I, I really, I really quite like that. I think there's elements of this film that kind of remind me of um, was it Death Becomes Her? You see that film, Bruce Willis and Goldie Hawn? Yeah, um, I liked. Uh, I yeah. thought it was pretty neat how she was very practical in getting that knife from out of her back as well, uh, wedging yeah, it in the cupboard yeah. door. <laughs> Yeah, it was, it was a very effective sequence, and but the fact that she keeps on sort yeah, of bleeding that, that out uh, forever. Was that yeah. then followed on with? I, I can't remember if it's if it's prior to that or after it. She wakes up in a hospital, and her boss from the newspapers there. She's shackled, and then she then goes and sits in a room with kids in for some reason. They're like. Colouring in and scaring. I know what you mean. So, yeah. so that whole sequence could have been edited yeah. out of the film, but that this is a sort of thing I find. But maybe it says his experience as a music video director, where he can create these sort of visages, where because presumably the song's already there. All you have to do as a music director would be create the visuals, and he's creating the visuals for a lot of these films without the music necessarily being there, and. That whole sequence was very much edited for. I mean, it's it's one scare. It's a predictable scare where the child's drawing a monster. Yeah. But I still kind of like that scene, even though it you can remove it from the film, and the film still is not improved mm. or <laughs> yeah, well, worse in any way. You could say that about a lot of the scenes. <laughs> yeah. But so yeah, she then meets 
one of the deaders in the waiting room. Um, mm-hmm. She's the one that we've seen. Marla. Yeah, dotted throughout the film, occasionally mm-hmm. decaying, occasionally not. So I, I thought that was okay. It kind of built up to that bit where we have a bit more exposition. Although I did notice the cartoon she was watching on the TV in the waiting room. I had that on video. Yeah, I noticed that too. There was a great big fat guy and there was two pistons slapping into his belly. old King Cole and he was having the wind knocked out of him because he was right. full of shit, basically. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant. I was wondering about that as I watched it. I, I have to say that probably not a good sign if I'm more interested in what's on the TV <laughs> in a film than the actual film itself. I just want to bring up another uh, sequence I thought was quite effective was actually the dead person. And this is Marla's corpse as well Mm. in the toilet at the start Mm. of the film where she gets the box. She gets the envelope with the video, the box, and she she creeps around the corpse, picks it up and has to get out of there. And then there is, we do get that jump scare of the body coming alive again. And so, you know, you you see a scene and you remember it and then you watch the film, you think it's in and oh no, that must have been the other one. So I did get confused really with Pretty much the exact same sequence in uh, Christoph Gann's uh, Silent Hill movie, where there's a very similar sequence of a body barbed wired into a toilet cubicle. And in Silent Hill, there's a little note inside the mouth. But in this one, it's obviously the hands clutching the box. And it, it was, I think, it was a very effective jump scare. But I think there's also the observation to be made that. Uh, she bribed the landlord to go into someone's flat that was not her own flat. And so obviously that's bribery for uh, trespass. And this landlord doesn't know there's a dead body in there. I think he must have known there's a dead body in there. Like, I, I don't buy that he hasn't checked it to be able to, to know to take a bribe for things. Mm. Right, she walks in and wretches. He's like, she's like, oh, what's that smell? I don't smell anything. <laughs> I mean, maybe for him, his dead bodies showing up all over the place. There's, uh, they don't make Bucharest look particularly amazing in this. Although one thing I will say, in fairness, whilst the Bucharest tourist board will definitely not thank them for this movie, <laughs> it feels like much more of a real location than we had in the last movie. Like part six, mostly just takes place indoors. Yeah. Like in part four, it was a period drama that still almost all took place indoors as well. I, I think that, like, in using and uh, using Romania here, you know, we see like a proper train, for instance. We see proper streets. There's just something about about seeing locations which makes a film feel a bit like a bit more effort went into it than Part Six. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, the, the train they they use that on multiple occasions. You've got uh, the the data leaders throwing himself in front of one for a start, as well as the midnight goth train. Going on to that, who gets a tattoo on a train? (laughs) Who would do that on a moving vehicle? Not one person, but two at least. They did it on Jackass. but uh, (laughs) yeah, I uh, I think that's different. Uh, Jackass, you, you aspire to get a tattoo on a train. In, in this film, it looks like these people just really wanted the, that train sequence is, is very bizarre. It's, it's people taking drugs, people having a party, tattoos, and there's an orgy going on. There's, there's a lot going on on that train. Yeah, yeah it felt like with Rick Bota, he's like, we'll put some gratuitous nudity in the film because it's cool, you know? And like, oh, 
here's some piercing and tat and piercings and tattoos. We can use this as being like an indicator of a person being creepy or evil or something. <laughs> it's just something I, I a bit lowbrow, but I was wondering, right? So mm-hmm. we've got a, we've got a ton of extras on that train. Presumably they uh, presumably they, there's about you know we can we can imagine tens of people on this, right? We're probably reusing people, but. They have something you don't normally have in horror films, and that's you get a cock shot at one point of this dude just walks around with his uh, junk hanging out. So I think to, think to myself, right, as an extra, <laughs> would he be paid more than the other extras were? Because, like, you know, you go, all right, we need some extras. You, I want you to sit there and talk to and talk to the woman beside you. You, I want you to take your cock out. You go, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> Do I get do I get paid like a cock bonus for this part? Because like if if I was making my appearance in uh, in Hellraiser Seven, the first thing you do is you're told to take your cock out by Rick Bolt as he films this. I I I don't think you you'd be pretty pissed off because you couldn't show your mates or anything. You got look. This was a cold day when we filmed it. <laughs> the shoot in a film in, in, in Bucharest on a train at night, and everyone's dead. <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong, right? You know, obviously the same thing goes where you've got uh, all the women there who are topless in this uh, in this movie. Where mm-hmm. I, I'd like to think they would have been paid more from the other extras as well, since the nudity is completely needless. Like, it's rare to be a horror fan and complaining that the movie's got too many breasts in it. But mm. <laughs> I, I, I think, you know, obviously, it's a, it's a Hellraiser film, isn't it? So, what are we missing? Oh yeah, a bit of grot. So. Sex train, let's go. Like, like where the other choo, films? Choo. Where, where, where the other films are all like, uh, all right, so uh, we're going to look at like sin and salvation and lust and greed and stuff. Rick Bolton doesn't doesn't really care about any of this. He's like no. substance, substance. Just take your just take your top off and it will look cool. You know that's that's the Bolton technique. Bolton technique. <laughs> We'll fix it in post. Rick, if you'd ever like to come on our podcast as a guest, you're more than welcome. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, we might have an exciting guest coming up, but I, I don't want to spoil things. Um, something I'm going to compliment this film over, over though, right? In the first act, I thought the mystery they brought up, to use the, the word that Jim always seems to use, which semi means shit, but I'm going to use it in a positive way, is I thought the first act was quite interesting. I thought the cult was the single coolest part of the film. It was just when we discovered what the cult was actually all about, the film really nosedived for me. But apparently, uh, so this one and part eight were both shot back to back. It was a contractual obligation where if you're filming in Romania, you have to make two films. And Mm. apparently with this one, they were trying to go for a Japanese horror style. Whereas I assume with part eight, they were trying to go for a style of, uh, of like the Saw films. And I think the sort of rural mystery element here, the kind of slower pace, it does feed into that. But I just thought, like, the more we find out about the cult, the less interesting the story becomes, yeah. even though hmm. the basic concept is pretty cool. Now you've mentioned it, yeah, I can see how it draws on a J-horror sort of influence. Like, it's just lots mm-hmm. of like well for a start you've got them watching videotapes and stuff and it's 2005 but yeah like just you've got that kind of sort of metropolitan look to it that the creepy like dead is appearing as you've got the woman sat in the um the, the raincoat on the bench in the tube station like just bleeding on the floor 
the, the guy supposedly throwing himself in front of the train. These are all things we'd have probably seen in Japanese horror a few years prior to that. Just like creepy little bits where it's like, have I actually seen that? Did that happen? Mm. But obviously in a little more of a heavy-handed way. <laughs> yeah. I think with the guy throwing himself in front of the train, that was very much reminiscent of, um, you know, the guy in Hellraiser 6 shooting himself in the head to intimidate his friend. <laughs> and I, I want to speculate, because I think if you go to Romania, you have to film the contract. The deal is you have to film two films. And I wonder if that was why they filmed it there. Was that the only place where a film that film crew could afford to in an actual train station get an actual train to stop halfway and have other people searching it, it like budget wise is that the only place they could afford that I assume so a lot of films especially from that time onwards were all filmed in Eastern Europe weren't they even even some of the bigger mm-hmm. budget ones were filmed in Eastern Europe like Expendables and that sort of thing something that amuses me about this this uh as Jim called it, the sex train, is that the sex train seems to be going consistently between stations. So you, finding it would be an absolute pain in the arse. But also, I wonder if it gets, like, ticket inspectors or anything <laughs> on it. We, we got that guy who seems to kind of, like, he seems almost like he's in charge of the thing. You know, I can't remember his name now, it's just escaped me, but the kind of steampunk guy at the end, the one who shows up later to say that she's got a fucked up destructive thing about her because of her attitude problem and the mm. fact that she smokes mm-hmm. but everyone smokes in this film as well I, I, I was sort of wondering how how kind of official this train's supposed to be because you get like in, in so the, you know over here in the uk we have things like the party buses right where you know people get in a bus a bus goes between locations and everyone's just like drinking and dancing and probably doing drugs in the party bus but the thing is with a train, it had to be part of a wider organization. Like, you know, it's not like TFL would go, oh, by the way, the sex train runs at this time. Yeah, I, I just took it as it was part of some above the law criminal underground. That's very easy to find. <laughs> yeah, yeah it was, it was there's papers in the This crime organization makes this number of stops on these dates. <laughs> <laughs> Um, it, and also, if you want to get off, I mean, they need to have facilities, they need to have, provide some sort of food or whatever, because you're just getting alcohol all the time and other substances, and then you suddenly want to get off the train, you'd, you'd actually have to start looking out for your stop. Yeah, it'd be like, oh, I wouldn't have a hot dog. <laughs> but at the same time, if you want to get off, you stay on the train. Yeah. Ah, see what you did. <laughs> what if it, the wittier comments we have on this podcast <laughs> you can what is it you can sign out but you can never leave Hotel California that quote yeah you've got a bit of that there I'm wondering the guy leaping in front of a train to kill himself in an intimidating way just like in the sixth one I wonder if that's maybe also sticking with a J-horror theme a reference to Suicide Club which of course opens with an iconic scene of lots of people killing themselves by jumping in front of a train Good film if anyone's uh, if anyone's seen it. It's uh, if, anyone, if anyone's not seen it, it's well worth checking out. I've Probably actually not. I might check that out. Yeah, it's got some really good special effects in it. Some really eerie sequences. Um, got a, uh, another compliment I want to give it, which is that the chain sequence at the end looks really cool, just like in the sixth one. By this point, of the series they're like, all right, 
We're retreading old ground. We've got a journalist doing a story that's going to bring her towards the box. Yeah, you've seen this before. Yeah, you've seen the chains before. But you know what? We can do both these elements okay. And uh, I thought the chain is maybe the film's strongest bit. Mm, yeah, like the effects wise, definitely. Again, the, the effects in this one are a marked improvement on the uh, previous sequels we talked about in the last episode. But perhaps not as good as uh, Hellseeker. Um, mm. I think they go for more shocks in terms of jump scares and nudity in this one rather than anything else. Just a quick aside for this film, the, the Cenobites themselves, we only really see Pinhead and then other Cenobites turn up at the very end. I think we get Stitch and the Chatter at the very end. There was one that didn't make the final cut, which was called Spike, which is annoying because that would have been a very cool addition to the what the Cenobites' aesthetic were. Basically, Spike just has a massive spike through his head. Like, you can't see any of his face because that's how wide and long the spike is that runs lengthways through his head. And it was in a deleted scene, and there is actually merchandise. Like, they have little toys of the spike Cenobite. Just to add as well to things that never quite made it into the... Because Red Porter seems to have the habit of there's cool things that should make it into the film but they're not going to, like Spike, like in Hellraiser 6. There's an extended sequence of dialogue between Kirsty and Pinhead, which didn't make it into the film, and oh my god, it should have. It really should have. It would have tied things together much more nicely, but I, I can't imagine why they cut that. Yeah, because the audience want more Kirsty. You know, it's nice to see her and yeah. Doug Bradley on screen at the same mm-hmm. time. Uh, I've got another couple of quite petty points I want to <laughs> raise. The uh, First one, right. As we have the deaders doing their group chant as uh, she's on the bed and we're going to sacrifice her, that is such an unenthusiastic group of people. As if we're watching their parents bang on that bed or something like There's just nothing about this that suggests they're committed to their cause. And for me, that really stood out because these cult films, as we discussed a few episodes ago in the cult episode, listen if you haven't, that uh, these cult films really revolve around this idea of devotion, this idea of people being brainwashed. And here we're just like, oh, they don't really seem to be giving a shit about the cause. Uh, other, other wee things, the suicide to win trope irritates me because it's really overused, aside from potentially being quite reckless to use anyway. At the same time, there's so many films that I can think of where that happens. I'm not going to save their names for uh, obvious reasons, because it'd be spoilers. Some of them have been really critically praised, which kind of irritates me just because, by this point, it's such uh, an easy way out of the story. And also because, in this case, her entire arc seems to be about, again, finding a reason to live. And then the final bit, the twist we see, where the boss is assigning another uh, another attractive female uh, journalist who comes in, and he's going... Oh boy, I got this video on the post. At this point, the deaders don't exist any longer. So the idea that he's like some sort of roper, you know, here to like lure people into mm. their plan just because every single supporting character has to be part of his conspiracy, it doesn't make any sense because what's he sending her to? It, I think what he was trying to do there maybe was bookend the film. So in the same way the original Hellraiser was bookended mm. in, uh, I think it's an East Asian country or Middle East country where 
someone's looking for the box. And so the, the voice, what's your pleasure, sir? He buys the box, and then at the start of the film, it's Frank. But at the end of the film, he's selling the box to someone else. That sort of circular, this evil keeps going type thing. I think Rigbo is trying to do that, but yeah. it doesn't work. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the, the plot elements aren't there. Hmm. The, the box can be reopened. The deaders like aren't The story's been resolved. <laughs> yeah, not I this mean, time. It's handy that the family get the box again to be able to do their thing up in space. But on something you guys were saying earlier about the effects in the, this film... I do think, to be fair to Mr. Bota, he makes a budget work for him in a way the, the, the director of part four didn't. You know, he's saying, okay, realistically, what can we do with this money? Whereas in part four, you have this, what should be a huge scale, like a really epic horror film, and they can't do anything with it because they don't have the money to. It's like how with part five, Clive Barker had this vision of the entire city of London being swallowed by a box, right? Which could have been cool. And they went, like, tell you what, we're going to make Hellraiser Inferno because we're not giving you money to do that. The last one bombed, right? And uh, this is going to be straight to video. Mm -hmm. Whereas it strikes me with these ones, they say, well, we're going to do something. What realistically can we do? We can do a small scale, relatively intimate horror film with a few big effects money shots and we'll look all right. Um, the last couple of notes I have really for this uh, film are the musical puzzle box is again a musical puzzle box because it actually makes a tinkling sound when Amy Klein is trying to open it mm. Mm. and reuse of the name Joey so obviously the heroine from three part three was called Joey and now the man in charge of the you know midnight sex party drugs train his name's <laughs> also Joey yeah, they do this a few times. Another name will crop up in uh, part mm -hmm. eight that we've had before. Terry. Um, I, I just assume it's a little wink. Alice well, the next. To the better films. So. Yeah. <laughs> there is a Terry, though. We had a Terry. Oh, yeah, we had a Terry showed up, and she was in part five, and she's in part three. There's an Alison in part eight, and I'm pretty sure Alison's been used before in the series. Is in six. Yes, okay, yes, the boat is referencing himself. <laughs> The Botaverse. <laughs> uh, Jim, have you got any last comments you want to do before we do star ratings? No, nothing more to add. Okay, well, I'll tell you what, let's do star ratings. Alistair, what would you rate Dead or Right of Five? Two and a half. Because it, I preferred the concept of the story to six. It's not as obviously a remake of Hellraiser 5 as six was. It does have a lot working against this film. Um, but there's there's still a good idea in there, and the effective sequences in this, like for me, really worked with getting the box out of the hand of the corpse in the bathroom, and again with the knife in the back. That that worked for me. Fair dues. I am personally going to give this one two stars. I think it's worse than the sum of its parts. We do have some decent bits in it, like as you say, the knife in the back is particularly good. The uh, body in the toilet holding the box bits like that are cool but I just felt like the film's early potential just isn't realised and as it goes on it just became kind of incomprehensible uh, you know for me it just it squandered, a good, it squandered away a good idea and we just have again this habit of having these sort of fantasy sequences to uncover a backing story that A we basically know already and B isn't particularly interesting when we learn more about it. 
I, I sort of liked the central character, Amy. I thought she was... Uh, yeah, I thought the actor was good. good. I think she did better with the material she had, actually. And mm, um, yeah. I just wish it would have been a bit more to her than, all right, she doesn't take shit off anyone. She smokes like a chimney. And she's got a, like a difficult backing story, which, again, you can guess very early in the film before we have a lengthy flashback to explain it. So, uh, yeah, I'm going to give this two. I, I think there's definitely the potential for a better film than three, and since I've been six. And that frustrates me because six, six is basically as good as it can be, right? And this should be a better film than six. It's just its flaws are so glaring that, uh, I mean, again, it's not my least favorite Hellraiser film, but it's, uh, it's towards the bottom. And mm. uh, Jim, what about yourself? Uh, I've got to agree with Alistair on this one. It's uh, two and a half for me. Um, it, while it is quite similar in structure to the previous film, I feel it doesn't piss you about as much. <laughs> but on the other hand, there isn't as much there. Because it's less convoluted, it's probably a little more padded out in that case. But yeah, not quite as good as part six, but Still not entirely abysmal. Okay, now speaking of entirely abysmal, let's move on to Hell World. I'm going to a real life secret Hell World party. Welcome, Hellraisers. Invitations. But if you need anything, just scream. world folks i want to tell you the tragic story of one lance hendrickson lance hendrickson was originally going to play the part of frank cotton in the original hellraiser film but was unable to do so so imagine his joy when eight films later he gets approached to play the part of the host this is the worst hellraiser film in the series i reckon don't be wrong we have two to go I've seen both of them before, and maybe I'll strongly reevaluate them. But for me, this is the absolute worst film in the Hellraiser series. And I'm just going to rip this one a new one. So <laughs> before I do, guys, is there anything that you particularly like about this film? Because my main compliment for it is we've got, again, this kind of Contrast between bad writing, but some quite visually striking moments. The bit in the bar, where everyone's ignore, ignoring the guy, and he turns around and suddenly they're all hung from the ceiling, look kind of cool. The asthma sequence is fairly tense. As an asthmatic myself, I was like, ooh, I'm empathising with the pressure. And the house itself is quite a good location. They give it a history. There's some decent visuals attached to it. And that's basically it. Lance Henriksen elevates some pretty shitty material. I mean, to be mm -hmm. fair, Lance Henriksen doesn't really have the most quality control. Um, but even for him, this is, a, this is a weak movie. And also, I think the opening sequence tricks you into thinking you're about to watch something better. We've got this kind of somber music in the church. And I thought an okay reaction to the suicide. But for many reasons, which I'm about to go into later, this is the weakest film of the series. What do you reckon, Alistair? Yes, quite possibly the weakest entry of the series as well. There is 
I mean, not really that much ground to cover with this film, uh, even though it is feature length. It's got a large amount of issues in it. The story, Mace basically being one of them, it reminds me actually of when you were a kid and you had those, uh, there's a series of books called Point Horror Books. And they're oh, all yeah. Pretty sort of straightforward uh, slasher flicks. And this film kind of reminds me of a lot of those. Our audience of uh, largely men between 35 and 45 will be saying, I remember the Point Horror. <laughs> I, I certainly do. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it, it, it really reminds me of a lot of them. And there's just, I mean, there are good things in it, and basically you did cover that in your initial summarization of the film. The location was good. There were some sound audio effects that did uh, elicit memories of the first film and the flapping of the, the wings, the pigeons, um, stuff like that. But it's, uh, uh, yeah, it was really the... <laughs> Jim, what do you reckon? What do you reckon? You're, you're going to tell us you thought it was amazing, right? <laughs> I know I'm normally the contrarian, but uh, <laughs> I, I think I probably liked it a little bit more than you guys did. I, I wouldn't say it's particularly good. <laughs> um, I think out of all of the Hellraisers we've seen so far, I know it's been mentioned a few times that, oh, this one is reportedly not originally written as a Hellraiser. This one is the most glaringly obvious one as being retrofitted to be a Hellraiser film. Mm -hmm. Because even when you get to the end, you think, why the fuck was that a Hellraiser film? (laughs) This this to me feels like... It was hidden in an office drawer. Oh, there's a script for this horror film for 1997. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I let's let's just put oh let's you know put a little mark in there. We'll change that to pinhead. Oh, we'll put the puzzle box there. There we go. We've got our film. I know what you did last Hellraiser. <laughs> <laughs> and it works because he's using exactly the same plot twist that he's used before. Yeah. <laughs> the thing is, like it's um as a as this as this did begin life as a as a short story an unrelated short yeah. story yeah. that's been adapted to be a Hellraiser film, and yeah, it shows. I mean, the fact of it, like the twist at the end of the film is that the Cenobites are in it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you get this first twist of going, oh, turns out the Cenobites weren't real, and the next twist is. Oh yeah, my son didn't commit suicide. He just opened a portal to hell, and it turns out they are real. <laughs> He's like egg on my face before showing up in the car again. By the mm. way, Lance Henriksen, he's so clearly the villain in this film. He's like, ah, yes, yeah. human skin ornaments here. <laughs> <laughs> what what I didn't quite get, but this is how the film loses itself, is that although we keep seeing Pinhead. We also see Lance Henriksen, and it's implied that he is pinned at times, but then we see them in different shots of the same scene. He's out in, in the garden digging graves, whereas Pinhead's mm-hmm. monologuing. So if mm. it, well, is he acting as like a, a Renfield-type character? Is he serving them up for the Cenobites? What, what's going on? And then it turns out this is all just a hallucination anyway. It's like, 
What, yeah, what the <laughs> but it, it, well, it isn't, it isn't. See, one of the most annoying things about this film is we're not sure of the, me- the mechanics by which the plot twist, the original plot twist, works. Because this party definitely happens because we have to, we have to have a reason yeah, to yeah, the yeah. house, right? But then some of the things of the party don't seem to happen and the guests seem to kind of vanish then, and then appear again. And then it's revealed that it's a hallucination that all of them are having collectively. Like, you're just like thinking, okay, well, what of the party bits did happen? Like, did, did the host here, did the host just create this fantasy for them where for some reason part of his master plan is they all fantasize about having sex with lots of people? Which is, <laughs> I'd say, quite generous of the host. Or at least even well, organizing a party to I, get revenge, which includes shagging lots of people. I guess if you have got teenage boys involved, that is a pretty low-hanging fruit. <laughs> but he, he's like, oh, I want to get my revenge, so I'm going to do something really sadistic. I'll invite him around to a party with lots of beautiful women who will sleep with him. And then afterwards, <laughs> afterwards, I'll bury them in my yard. But again, it's subjective as to whether they actually did. Were they hallucinating that? Did one of them wank themselves to death in, while they were buried in the coffin? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. If you got to go, you got to go. I love how <laughs> elaborately staged everything is. This guy's created an online role-playing game based mm-hmm. on the Hellraiser universe merch and everything they've got t-shirts masks all based on the films we've watched previously and then we when we finally do get to see it it's nothing more than like a crappy little flash yeah it's one of those web browser games (laughs) like on on newgrounds.com or something again audience of 35 to 45 year olds will remember that website i i was so disappointed I don't know if you've seen it, but remember the episode of South Park where they're all playing World of Warcraft? Mm. Yeah. I, I yeah. was really hoping for something ridiculous like that. Me like, too. When I read that, <laughs> <laughs> I thought, yes, here we go. This is my sort of shit. But no, yeah. all we see is them solving a flat pack puzzle box and then getting an invite to a party. And that was, it, it, I was it, so disappointed at all that hype for this game. I and that was it. the least something. meta, meta film there is. Oh, absolutely. I mean, for, well, firstly, it's not clear what relation this has to the other movies because the iconography all exists. They know what the Cenobites look like, but at the same time, they also directly reference the house and the cube of being created by the family. So both can't be true. Mm. I think this is where it mm. kind of gets lost in itself. Like it, it's thrown mm. all these ideas out and all this, you know, stuff. Where are they hallucinating? Is it real? What's happening? Is he been Ed? Is he someone else? And it just ties itself in knots and can't quite explain what and why this has been going on. Yeah, uh, to create something you're saying earlier, Phil, with. Lance Henderson, he didn't create this game because his son, keep in mind that his son committed suicide because he got somehow got so into this web-based game. But that means he did have to hack the game to create the party. 
he basically took this from the I know what you did last summer school of uh, of tormenting your uh, victims. You know, I'll buy them a holiday to a nice hotel in the Bahamas. Yeah. And they'll drive out and kill him. In this case, he's like, can I invite them to a party? Can I get them laid? And then I'm going to party it, It's yeah, you lost for words. I, it's it really yeah. is dumbfounding yeah. how elaborate and stupid this entire thing is. Because the, 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 the game had to be dumb enough for them to win it. So yeah. get the invites <laughs> to the thing that where he's trying to get them all killed. Yeah, and he's like, I'm going to kill them, but I'm going to get lots and lots of other witnesses to be there. <laughs> <laughs> and, and for a child, he never even had anything to do with as well. Yeah. Like, that, yeah. that, that is that literally raised in the film. So it, it, the fact that they're bringing it up in the film just goes to tell you how stupid this is. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, the beginning he's like, yeah. uh, you were like, where's his dad? Didn't show up at the funeral, you know? And then, like, y- using this as a kind of motive, I almost wa- I almost thought they were going to do something slightly smarter, where the reveal in the end is that the friends really did, uh, like, really weren't paying attention to the warnings and just didn't really give a fuck about this guy, like, they tormented him to death. Something like that would have presented a level of moral ambiguity that's really been lacking in these last couple of movies. You know, like part seven again, she kills her dad to stop herself from being molested. Fine, right? In this one, they uh, they care about him. He's they're his best friends. He kills himself, and then the dad who didn't give a fuck about him goes, "I'm gonna get you because it's your fault." And you go, "No, it wasn't." Like <laughs> it's not like the original Hellraiser films were all about kind of sin and salvation, and these ones they're yeah. not really. Well, this one is clearly ripped off from a half baked slasher script that. You can yeah. tell didn't know where to go. It, it didn't know what it was going to do with itself. Mm. And they needed a quick answer to the, we need to make another film. So this one, you know, maybe got stuck between the drawers of a filing cabinet or something. Yeah, let's just throw Pinhead in that one. Um, and we'll chuck in a bunch of Rick Bota's signature, write yourself into a corner. Yeah. And something interesting <laughs> happens. Mm. You yeah. wake up. Yeah, you know, I wish anyone loved me as much as Rick Bota loved doing that. It just, <laughs> that guy absolutely goes for that. I mean, I'm, I'm surprised you managed to keep count in, in the first film, let alone the fact that it carried on over the next two. <laughs> <laughs> like Rick Bota just goes, oh, well, maybe the audience have come to suspect I'll do this. So it'll be even scarier when I do it. You go, that doesn't work, Rick. <laughs> Well, I've done, I've done this a lot, so they won't be expecting it if I do it again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, surely this time it's real. Ah, you got me this time, Rick. Yeah, there was quite a few similar moments that I suppose. There's, there's a bit where um, is it Chelsea, and she's trapped in one of the rooms, and she calls the police. In one breath, she she calls them, and they can't hear her. She's like yelling down the phone. You know, I, I'm. At this address, but uh, you know we can't hear you. There's anyone on the end of the phone. Very, very next cut, the police are outside. We've had a report that you know, there's someone trapped yeah. in this building. And well, well, hang on, but we do have a twist of that because the police show up, and uh, uh, and the party's clearly not on at that point. Despite Lars Henriksen saying, "I like to party," at the same time. We're meant to buy that the ghost called up, right? This go- the ghost hmm. of his son called up to grass him up. 
Now, what's really unintentionally funny about this, the ghost can use a mobile phone, but for some reason, <laughs> lets him be buried for several days before he makes the call. Yeah, I'll just like, let you like, wait for two days, yeah. then I'll make the call. You're like, what a dick. <laughs> but yeah, I think it's the fact that it, it cuts immediately from her being on the phone to the police. Because like, at this point, we're still meant to believe that this is all happening real time. You know, we don't yeah. find out this is all a hallucination until the end. But yeah, I, we can't hear you. Is anyone there? Oh, the police are here. And then she's on the phone to the police again right then. Like, so they've gone from not being able to hear her, is there anyone even calling, to her saying, yeah, I'm right in front of you. <laughs> they can hear a ghost call from the same house, which is strange. <laughs> I mean, I guess, I guess she thinks, this might be a bit like the end of Six, where, like, you know, she's managing, managing to imagine the same, the same police officers that she's spoken to, right? Or the police officers that might rescue her are the same ones that Lance Henriksen's talking to, yeah. right? But, uh, I, I mean, she shouldn't be... I guess her not being able to make the call is because she physically can't make a call. She sat yeah. there beside a mobile phone that Lance Henriksen's just taunting her through. Yeah. Presumably, like, he, I, I don't know if Lance Henriksen's meant to be calling all of them at the same time to tell them what they're meant to be imagining or something. Because I just, like, this shared hallucination thing, it's like in the, so the Exorcist Part 2 where they've got synch synchronized hypnosis. It's a really unintentionally funny bit of the movie where they go, I know you have science on your side with this synchronized hypnosis. <laughs> and you're like, what? <laughs> such a strange film, uh, that one. A, a thing that irks me with the mobile phones as well is like that they've got this big rack of mobile phones. You know, they've got these sex masks with the phone number on. Yeah, mm -hmm. and I know I appreciate it's shared hallucinations, but at this point, we don't know that when their phone rings, their name's on the display. These are all phones they've literally oh, yeah. just been handed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which also implies that he knew which person was going to pick up which phone. Well, it's also his thing of like, uh, yeah, I tell you what, I'm going to torture these kids, but first, I'm going to get them laid. <laughs> We're going to organize this masking, which again, probably does happen, um, because it's happening while yeah. some of them are still wandering around and stuff like that. Yeah, and I, I, I actually quite liked the bit where they're being shown around. Here's my room full of foreshadowing uh, pickled babies and heads and all of that the, the, mm. the hook which uh henry cavill swings from you know gets warned about touching that and so uh, what's going to happen here then you know the same with the the, the other lad with his uh, inhaler oh he's just taking his inhaler we know what's going to happen later on don't we <laughs> um so yeah really yeah. really heavy-handed foreshadowing with that but i liked the fact that we got to see them go off on their own thing. You know, it, it did go very slasher. They all went off on their own. They all did yeah. things that they were solely interested in. It, and it kind of reminds me of the Charlie the Chocolate Factory <laughs> yeah. in the way that each of the children, you know, they, they have their own different sort of vice and that's what leads them into their, their own demise. And yeah, uh, I think Charlie the Chocolate Factory and Hellraiser 8 is quite an odd pairing to make but it, it, <laughs> that might have been what they were aiming for I, mean, I, um, I made a Hamlet and Tell Reese 6 parallel because so, <laughs> you know, Hellraiser can be uh, can be compared to to better media <laughs> the thing is they don't all have a distinct vice though like you know I mean having asthma is yeah. a vice so it's the horniness is basically the vice for the guys 
And hmm. the uh, women in it are just a, a, a bit too boring to really have these sorts of nuances. Uh, <laughs> yeah. For instance, one of them, uh, the girl gets bored. She walks into a room and gets trapped into the you know, torture chair device. And what does annoy me about this scene, they're obviously going for a parallel to the, because she ends up with an injury similar to the female Cenobite in the first film. But the the cut at the center of the throat, and you look at the two blades that are on that device, and they clearly don't line up at all mm. with the injury she's supposed to later receive. So that always bugs me. Yeah, like, and, mm. and also later on in the film, like why this one is the longest of the three we're talking about, I don't know. But later on, uh, you've got Chelsea running around trying to escape, um, and they they all come back assumedly in in Cenobite form. I said, oh, wow, this is a little neat twist here. You you, you can see the injuries I've all had. Is this them sort of transitioning at the same time? But then they go and do the whole hallucinogenic thing, just kind of putting into any goodwill that bit might have built up. Yeah, and it's really the sort of um, writing yourself in the corner thing because the police have to show up to rescue them. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah it, it just yeah. Uh, again it goes back to it tying itself in knots. Oh crap! How do we undo this? But, oh well, well they're rescued now. <laughs> like there's, there's no real character journey in this film at all. For I suppose Chelsea's our our lead or Jake, um, but there's not really a whole lot of character development for either of them. Something I did find quite funny is the way that Lance Henriksen <laughs> casually reveals. He's pretending to be a girl online and is flirting with Jake so he can get lots of information. <laughs> mm. I just love the idea of Lance Henriksen sitting down there trying to come up with something saucy. ASL. He's like, he's like, oh, this guy killed my son, killed my son with his negligence, says the father's in the world. He's like, so I'm just, I'm just going to flirt with him. But then you've got to think of the time frame between the, the lad dying at the beginning of the film and this party happening. Mm-hmm. It's like a day. <laughs> no, there's, there's, there's a two. There's a, there is a title that comes up two years later. Oh, it's two years. Sorry, I must have missed so that part. You get the funeral where the dad doesn't turn up. Well, and then yeah. the the jump scare of the open casket. There's a, by the way, open casket coffin for someone who set himself alight, <laughs> immolated himself, and then it's a jump two years later. And this is ah. when the father's clearly hacked the game and set up a party, and there is a callback to the architecture of Labachonton from 1990s. He has a big uh, box in the background that's spinning. Yeah, um, that was pretty noticeable, unlike the two years later for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, what, what I get from this film is that, and I said this to David, it reminds me of one of the X-Files film where there's fungus that makes you experience a hallucin. It's a hallucinogenic, but it knocks you out and then it starts digesting you. And this film sort of functions like that. Like, pretty much everything you see after the funeral is a dream sequence. Then at the very end of the film, we have Lance Henriksen, you know, skipping off to freedom, to victory. And then he opens the box and the Cenobites take him apart, which technically the epilogue of this film is the only true 
Hellraiser mm. sequence yeah, in the movie. That, that, that feels like it's been shoehorned into it. Oh, shit, we mm-hmm. better just confirm yeah. that this is a Hellraiser film. <laughs> yeah. it, it does that shit line, that how is this for a wake-up call or something like that? Yeah. You know, you're like... Yeah. like in, in, in all three of these movies, I think the dialogue for Pinhead really suffers. And yeah, apparently Brad, uh, Doug Bradley was a big part of writing the dialogue for part six. He got he got uh, creative input into his own uh, into his own part. I want to say quickly that there's dialogue that I recognised from I think it's Hellraiser five. So the line is "Who I am is of no concern of yours" or something to that effect, and I'm pretty sure that was said again in Hellraiser eight, mm. if mm. not seven as well, because Pinhead never really talks about himself in any of these films. Just funny you should mention Doug Bradley being more having more of an involvement. Is is six the first time we see him not as Pinhead? Ah, uh, yes, yes. We see He's him as the, the sort of yeah, he gives, the homeless man guardian of the box. Yeah, he gives Trevor the box whilst dressed as like a new metal bass player. <laughs> <laughs> Just while we're talking about that, I just want to bring up that and one thing I will say about Hellraiser 7 actually is that there's a cameo by Gary J. Tunnicliffe who appears early on in the uh, in the office sequence when uh, Carrie Whirr has come back from the crack whore den. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, mean, I can't word it any less politically correct than that. That's <laughs> in the actual movie. So that happens. And yeah, that's uh, Gary J. Tunnicliffe who's been involved in the series since at least uh, the third film, I believe. And in the next podcast, we're basically going to be talking about both films scripted by him and number 10, Judgment, was uh, directed by him as well. And he plays another character in that film. I reckon with this, with uh, Deader, the mentality was he went, look, we need some people who can sound British. Gary J. Dunkler's British. Will you appear in our movie? <laughs> <laughs> we got to sell if this is happening in England. He did an admiral job. By the way, fair play to this one. Um, you would have absolutely no idea if this was shot in Romania. Because they set it in the US and just and it basically yeah. looks like the US. Admittedly, most of this takes place indoors again, unlike uh, Deader, which did show us the uh, did show mm-hmm. us the landscapes a bit. Um, with uh, with Kenry uh, Cavill in this, it's interesting seeing him show up. I don't think he's got a whole lot to work with. He does have one of the better deaths with the uh, the uh, was it the, 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 the he gets a blade of the blade in the back thing, right? So it's the hook that the hook, travels sorry, the back. across yeah, yeah. the room, isn't it? Uh, yes, he's got the hook in the back. Um, he's also got the bit where he's talking on the phone whilst receiving a blowjob. Yeah. <laughs> never a, a good idea. Um, Henry Cavill's multitasking. <laughs> she carries on. And this could either be, depending on how you interpret it, either this is something that happens to him before the hallucin- hallucinations kick in. Since yeah. We know that Lance Henriksen did hang out at the party himself because we get that flashback where he goes, I enjoyed the rest of the party. We just see him hanging out with some women, right? Mm. <laughs> so the party did happen. Whether whoever uh, Lars Henriksen thought, I'll treat him to uh, a blowjob off someone, <laughs> who, um, you know, or it's just all in his head. We don't know it. I don't think anyone really knows except for Rick and Bota. It's revenge, <laughs> Jim, but not as we know it. <laughs> um, <it's... laughs> I mean, the... That sequence, right, the, say the two guys in this film, they receive slasher movie deaths. Mm. 
And as I've said about this series before in previous centuries, this is not a slasher film series. But uh, we get the one guy being decapitated by uh, Pinhead, or at least the image of Pinhead with a meat cleaver. And Henry Cavill's character gets meat hooked and is left swinging around. And I think David's quite right, actually, with it. These are the deaths you would see in a Saw film. Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt about it. This was written with Slasher in mind. I mean, even mm-hmm. even mm-hmm. Pinhead comes across like Freddy Krueger. Like, yeah. Just popping up in front of the teens every now and then to deliver a one-liner just to creep them out or or pick them off in a different way as you say picking up the meat cleaver Um, but yeah I did take take that as Sovo like Alistair because Saw came out in 2004 this comes out in 2005 and I reckon there's probably a bit of a response to going well we've got we've got done J-horror previously what's what's kind of in right now well, if this film Saw is getting some traction, Hostel would have at least been in the making mm. of at this point, possibly even have a trailer out. And, uh, you know, I think this is a, a case of going, right, let's try and take this in more of a gore direction since that's also being done. And mm. uh, that's where you've got, like, your kind of grotty bathroom kind of locations, you know, minging basements and stuff, which only really works because the group are completely incapable of sticking together, even at, when they're at a party <laughs> where we don't know anyone else. Right. <laughs> And uh, potentially because you've got the shag tag thing set up, you know, maybe that's why he's doing it so you can uh, split the group up. Do you guys remember shag tag night? So that's a very nineties thing, which our audience of thirty-five to forty-five year olds ago, yeah, <laughs> shag tag nights. I remember those, where you know people would go in, you uh, you wear a number, then someone writes a number on the board, and then they write their number on it, and then you go, oh, I see, and you decide yeah, if you want to speak yeah. to them. You get to see who fancies who. Yeah, it'd be sad when you look at the board and like you know you you don't have your number up there and like <laughs> your mates do. <laughs> I can't say I ever went to anything like that. I was more of a pub guy. <laughs> yeah. On that note, I want to jump back into Hellraiser Eight and uh, just say that there is about the party. There is the party going on in the main hallway in the stairwell as well, health and safety, and also there's like a pub, there's a sort of room, a fine dining area where people are having whiskey. It's a bit quieter in there. And I would say this this is a sequence that, wouldn't, that should be in a better film where the boy walks in, he starts talking to people and nobody yeah. can hear him or see him. Now, just where you got a big party, a big sort of goth party happening in one room, and in the other room you've got sort of a fine dining, whiskey consumption area. You do I, have a sh- Lance, a I still think you've got Lance Henriksen's He's taken a few leafs out of J.P. Monroe's book for the style of party to have, where you have conflicting tones and adjacent rooms. But he does still have a shagging couple in that room. Like he's got that couple who are just on the sofa, a sofa um, at it with each other, whilst at the same time he's here for the rest of his very <laughs> fine dining. Yeah, again, I think that's the the side where it's messing with their heads because, as you say, is mm-hmm. is um is coming is is it after? No, it's it's prior to his encounter with the woman. Um, he's trying to, you know, speak to people and no one can hear him. That, to me, just felt like they'd lifted that straight out of Nightmare on Elm Street. It just felt like that kind of bit where each individual kid who's going to get picked off or potentially picked off has uh, something they've got to deal with. Usually something from a deep-seated fear here is where people don't see him he's getting ignored 
Mm. And, and that's what I took from this bit. And then the more he's being ignored, the more extreme the situation gets, which is when all of a sudden people are appearing in front of him, like shagging on the sofas <laughs> and benches around him and so on. And we, we, I get that impression a couple of times. Again, it's with the uh, inhaler bit as well. He's trying to take his asthma pumps. He's, is, he, is he dancing with someone? And then all of a sudden he starts getting short of breath. So yeah. He needs yeah. his pumps. So it's only the blue one, though. So I don't know why he, should, you know, he needs that one. But uh, <laughs> um, he drops it down the grill, which then goes to yeah. the subterranean level. So he's got to go to the foreshadowing room again to get killed basically <laughs> um but yeah and certainly you know there's there's protracted sequences of this film with lance Henriksen to explore this room of creepy memorabilia we're going to go over to another room now more creepy memorabilia this <laughs> just seemed to drag on for quite a while incidentally there's this film throughout cut throughout this film are outside shots of lance Henriksen digging holes in the ground yeah I like to imagine that's Lance Henriksen digging up all the plot holes in this story. <laughs> uh, again, witty banter. Um, I think something like I was saying earlier about the group not sticking together, it's frustrating because you don't buy the bond there. Mm-hmm. Like, the thing is, this group have had something traumatic happen in their life here. You know, They've had a, a close friend who's committed suicide. And it doesn't like at the beginning they they have a they do kind of explore a bit their largely irrational but very understandable guilt about all this right, and then it's just once we get the two years later jump, they don't really seem like friends in it. You know we don't we don't really get much of a feel of their dynamic. We don't really get who's who here. What's each of them bringing to the table? And it's something that irritated me because a lot of these sort of slasher films they do function like ensembles where we do get to know the group. We're gutted when one of them dies because we know that they're upset when each other dies. Here, they don't have it. People generally don't mm. know this weird shit's happening until they themselves are dying or being threatened. And it just sort of felt like such a core part not to do because instead, Bota seemed to want to do these kind of music video sequences, <laughs> these, as you said, protracted sequences. Um, also, by the way, something that would have been cool that they didn't do, that I don't know why, is... At the party, rather than trying to make it all sexy, it would have been better if the people were all dressed as Cenobites. Yeah, I mean, they've had, as I said earlier, they've got merch, they've got costumes, all that sort there of thing. There was a chatter so, mask. Yeah, so... You, but like if you went if you went into like a room where you've got several pinheads, several several chatters, yeah. I mean, that would be like the boat at Ethos, because you wouldn't know what's real here. Yeah, I mean, like, when... Chelsea answers the door to Henry Cavill's character at the beginning of the film. He's wearing a chat room. I think, oh, right. you know, we're getting there straight away. And then it turns yeah, out. But you don't, you, don't, you don't go like the chat room is just showing up in student halls. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, like, it could quite easily have just been a load of excited teens there. They've been invited to this party. So they're going to wear the costumes based on this thing they're all spending their lives being excited about for a start. If I was going to make an argument, I, I think they maybe didn't do that so that when the Cenobites did appear, the audience knows that these are the real ones because we are in now the films where even though the Cenobite Angelique should be appearing in all these hmm. films at this point, she isn't, but we're getting different Cenobites per movie. So if you have the pe- if people in the party dressing up as Cenobites, 
and then real Cenobites showing up. But because we're using different Cenobites per movie now, the audience aren't going to know which one's which. Or what's real or not, which is a very mm. real problem in the Bota films. <laughs> so I, th- I think that's why they kept the look of the Cenobites just to the Cenobites and not have anyone dread mm. outside of that mask sequence, that false jump scare uh, that, that's kept, they kept a lid on that. There's, there's another part that uh, just utterly baffled me. It's uh, towards the end where, where things are starting to unravel. We're not quite revealed that they're all buried underground and hallucinating collectively. But Chelsea, just out of nowhere, spinning back kicks Lance Henriksen off the balcony. Yes. Yeah. I just thought, <laughs> fucking Scott Adkins just appear for five seconds or something. You know, it's just, abs- like, it, I know it, she... It's a dream sequence at least. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> It smacks very much of the, the two what? kickboxing <laughs> cowboys from Five. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Oh, brilliant. Um, so, is anyone else got anything else, anything else to say about this before we rate it? Well, um, I, I, I can't remember if it was Pinhead or Lance Henriksen's character said, it's like a bad horror movie. Yep. Do you think that was to try and add a bit yeah. of cheeky nudge nudge wink wink fourth wall breaking we know this is actually shit so if we mention it shit it might be a little more fun (laughs) yeah yeah because it strikes me as if you're going to be including that line of a film you've got to have a good film to be able to justify it it's like (laughs) the hubris of you guys see uh, x-men apocalypse where they got a bit where they're leaving the cinema they've just seen return of the jedi right and uh, one of them turns around to the others and goes yeah, that wasn't much cop. A cop, and everyone goes, part threes are always the worst, right? And you're going, okay. <laughs> this is the worst film in its own trilogy with uh, Days of Future Past and First Class. And it just looks silly now. It's where I come in and contrarian as usual and say I actually really enjoyed Apocalypse. That <laughs> <laughs> uh, makes sense. you unique, I guess. It's not always useful. So, I wasn't too fan of it well, myself. Let, let, let's, see if, let's see how maverick you are in this one. Let's do the star ratings. Uh, myself, this will probably surprise nobody, I give this one a one star. The series low point is only uphill from here. At least I hope it is. Maybe the rewatch will spoil either Revelations <laughs> or Judgment for me. I mean, we're not talking about... Revelations is not, a, from memory, a fantastic movie either. But at the same time, I, I, this is the low point of the series for me. I think it's one star. I think it's it's directionless. It's it's repetitive. And the fact that we're in the third of Bota's offerings and he still have as largely the same flaws that he's just had for the previous two movies, it's just a less interesting movie. I hated this one. What about you, Elster? Yeah, I'm going to be the same. I think one star. I think we'll agree on this film. It's, it's just lacking the oomph and any life or what you'd want to expect from a Hellraiser film. It's uh it's got that sort of teeny bopper quality to it of kids messing around. They go into someone's house and they keep going into what looks like should be locked rooms and just messing around with stuff and they keep getting all these nits and injuries. But these are meant to be hallucinogenic stuff to it it, it makes no sense really when you really start picking apart what's meant to be happening here. And I mean, over 90% of this film is stuff just done because it looks good in the moment. Mm. 
and you plot wise it it doesn't hold together at all no uh yeah this is uh, this is definitely the weakest entry uh what do you think jim you can agree with us one star i'm actually gonna give it a two <laughs> yeah it's terrible it's a mess it ties itself up in knots but some of the performances are good i you know, Henry Cavill was pretty good in this, and I was just as good looking when, you know, back in 2005, we're the same age. I've obviously <laughs> aged a little worse than he has. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I didn't enjoy it. The plot pissed me off. The reveal was terrible. Yeah. But some of it I thought was pretty good. I, I can't give it a one. The two stars is... is yeah, it's justifiable. As well, this is uh, this one split the group. Now, interesting you mentioned Henry Cavill because we're coming up to our list. Cavill appearing in it, but he's not the first huge actor to have appeared in a horror movie early on in their careers. I have taken a list from yardbarker.com of actors who appeared in horror films in like some early career roles. Now there's quite a lot of them here. They have 19, and I've added three of them that they have not mentioned. So let's get some names here. This isn't in any particular order here. What do we reckon? I'm going to say Leonardo DiCaprio. And oh. the film is it's Critters. It's one of the sequels. I think it's four. Three. You are right about three. DiCaprio. Yep, Critters number three. Yep. There was someone famous in Critters 4, if anyone remembers. No. <laughs> um, wait a minute. Was it the guy that grew up into... Was he in the... Austin Powers films as the son of Dr. Evil. Seth you know Green. Seth Green. Yeah. Uh, no, it wasn't a guy who appeared in that one. No, it's Angela Bassett appears in Critters 4. <laughs> so no way. The list. What, who else made, made early career it's, appearances? Is, isn't it common knowledge that both Brad Pitt and Jennifer Aniston were in Leprechaun movies. I don't know if it was the same one. I think it was just Jennifer Aniston. Yep, Jennifer Aniston makes a list of Leprechaun number one. Brad Pitt does does not make the list, but should. He was in another horror film. Does anyone know what that was called? No. (laughs) No. (laughs) Cutting Class was an early uh, career one for Brad Pitt. Who else has appeared in these? Uh, Paul Rudd was in... Halloween 6? Yeah, absolutely. Paul Rudd, Halloween 6. We've had... We, one of them is a Hellraiser film. I know, and I'm, I'm kicking myself. Because <laughs> I can't remember. It was part four. We had ourselves a famous actor appearing in Hellraiser part four. That was, Good of grief. course, Adam Scott. Yes. Because I even mentioned that. (laughs) (laughs) Now, uh, we've got uh, one of the world's biggest uh, actors, now a director. Uh, He is most famous for 
playing. Uh, well, he's not most famous for playing Batman, but he he did play Batman and badly. George Clooney. Yep, George Clooney oh, appeared in Return to Horror yeah. High and Return of the Killer Tomatoes. I was I was going to say Val Kilmer then because I actually prefer Batman and Robin to Batman Forever, but carrying. Yeah, <laughs> they're both pretty bad films. Those two. Who gets killed by Jason in the first? Not killed by Jason. Jason's mum in the first in the Kevin first Friday the Thirteenth film. Yeah, Kevin Bacon makes the list. It's an arrow through the throat. Yeah. And of course, I bet that would have loosened his foot. Ah, <laughs> uh, groan. And <laughs> <laughs> uh, next, uh, one of the most famous slasher films of all time, a career starter for someone. Johnny Depp. Uh, that's not the one I was thinking oh, of, but yeah, you. he's on the list as well. I'm thinking of Jamie Lee Curtis. Yeah, Jamie Lee Curtis, of course, of Halloween. Yeah. Um, Johnny Depp does make the list, and so does another actor who appeared in Nightmare on Elm Street. This was, uh, well, actually, in one of the sequels, this was Patricia Arquette mm. appears in Elm Street Part 4. Mm. And interestingly, I think it's Part 4, maybe it's Part 3. I think she was in the third one as well. I think she was in both Yeah, uh, I think you're right. I think both it, films. I think it was free. Yeah, Lawrence Fishburne also appears in, uh, in Elm Street 3. He's not on the list, and it's probably because he'd already, he already had a bit of a career before then. Like he'd already appeared in uh, Apocalypse Now, for instance. What else would you think makes this list? I can tell you... Tom Hanks is on this. Do you know what his horror film was? Was there... Uh, there was one called Mazes and Monsters? The Burbs. You know, it wasn't actually either of those. He's in He Knows You're Alone was the one he was in, which is a stalker film. <laughs> How does he we, know I'm alone? We also have uh, uh, Renny Zellweger and Matthew McConaughey. What did they appear in together? Oh, um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre... The Next Generation? Yeah, yeah. sorry. Texas Chainsaw Massacre, right. Next Generation, Part 4, which uh, I believe was, had, a, had a different shooting name. I think it was going to be called something like Return of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which uh, I'm glad they didn't go with. <laughs> um, Julia Louis-Dreyfus appeared in a uh, in a fairly bad movie, which is better known for having a, having a very bad sequel. going to give you guys a clue. Oh no, we're eating him. And next we're going to oh. eat me. Troll. Yeah, Julie Leo Dreyfus is in Troll. And also her her Seinfeld co I was just going to say that would lead it into the burning, which yeah. has got an ageless Jason Alexander in it. He looks exactly the same in that film playing a teenager as he does playing George in Seinfeld. <laughs> it's not a, pretty, not a particularly flattering thing. He hasn't aged to go, yeah, he, he, he aged badly at the beginning. Um, <laughs> But then flatlined, <laughs> age-wise. Now, we've got uh, another person appears in the Friday the 13th film, my personal favourite Friday the 13th, part four. Uh, this features, does anyone know? Is it one of the Corys? Uh, no, it's the actor Crispin Glover appears in it, where he's uh, best known for being the dead fuck character, as he gets nicknamed, and does some amazing dancing. We have uh, Michelle Williams as well, who appeared in Species and Halloween H2O. Now, Charlize Theron, do you know what she appeared in? Afraid not. Charlize Theron appeared in Children of the Corn Part 3. I was so hoping you were going to say Prometheus. <laughs> and get this, <laughs> um, Eva Mendes appears in Children of the Corn Part 5. Plus uh, Urban Legends. Oh, yeah. Now, we're down to the last few people here. Hilary Swank. Anyone know her film? Oh, the Karate Kid 
The next Karate Kid, that was terrifying. <laughs> I'll give you a clue. It became a very big TV series known for having Sarah Michelle Gellar. Oh, Buffy. Buffy. Yeah. She appeared in the hit movie Buffy Vampire Slayer. Now, Patrick Dempsey, hmm. Patrick Dempsey appeared in a film called The Stuff, which I've never watched, and Elizabeth Olsen. Now, this is a really good movie she appeared in, which is Martha Marcy May Marlene. I absolutely loved that film. Really eerie. A good film about someone uh, recovering from life in a cult. So think of it as being like a an unfunny version, or in fact, an even more unfunny version of uh, the unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. And uh, she also appeared in The Silent House as well, which is a pretty decent one-shot horror film. It was a remake. I can't mind where the original one is from. Now, there's a couple of other actors who were not mentioned there. Uh, Rooney Mara had a very small cameo in Urban Legends Bloody Mary. And uh, Seth Rogen has a very brief cameo in Donnie Darko. So there you go. It's not huh. It's not only Henry Cavill who became huge after having a, uh, a horror film in the back catalogue. <laughs> it almost seems like uh, starring in a horror film early on is a rite of passage. Yeah, what he yeah, didn't absolutely. mention there was Windchill that starred Emily Blunt. Oh, that was a really good movie as well, actually. Yeah, yeah that was ve- very early in her career, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Fair enough. Yeah, everyone should, everyone should do horror films. At least one. Folks, this has been probably the longest, most authoritative episode of any podcast on uh, on Hellraiser. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I hope Bo is just like, he's sitting here with a wee whiskey remembering all the good times on set. <laughs> <laughs> Thinking like, oh yeah, the train. Oh, if only he knew about the, uh, the cock rate for the extras. You know? <laughs> Apparently, just as a bit of a, because I did go on MD, IMDb and check out a few of the background details, and in the DVD commentary, Rick Bota does refer to the $10,000 extra. Now, apparently, the rules, the rule was that Rick Bota, as the director, was not allowed to give direct instructions to non-speaking extras. It had to go through the assistant director. But they shot a scene, and Rick Bota told one extra what he had to do differently, and, yeah, that extra claimed the fee oh wow I, I never heard of that's absolutely that's crazy i never heard of it the a, director not being able to speak to it's extra. a strange rule but you could it's, it's it's on it's online you can check out the ten thousand yeah. dollar extra probably earned more money than much of the main cast did he have oh, his did dick you? out <laughs> <laughs> that was boy's direct instruction um <laughs> Didn't you tell me about uh, about Ashley Lawrence about her oh. about her fee? That was that's like depressing she, as well. Now this got even more depressing. I I did check this out and apparently apparently I don't think she enjoyed her time on this film because um, as you said she didn't want to promote the film or put any effort in that way. Yeah, refused but, to do it for Fangoria when they asked and she was like, yeah. "No." <laughs> now she was. I read somewhere that she'd. Basically, her fee was so little that all she could get with it was enough to purchase a fridge freezer. <laughs> However, on on double checking, on double checking this detail, I realised that she only earned enough to make one payment on the fridge freezer oh, that she had bought. She'd have got more as she appeared on Bullseye. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah. our, our audience of 35 to 45 year old men going fucking yes maybe maybe we'll mention soda stream in the next episode 
I'm, you know, I'm sure our K, audience consists of more than that. <laughs> yeah. I think we've got quite a broad audience. I think, is it, are you talking about just the, the most likely, the general audience? Oh, yeah, yeah. Apparently it's a good 50 to 60% of our listeners. We have uh, 3% of our listeners are, uh, I believe, based in the uh, in the Czech Republic. So uh, I'll look yeah. to the Czech Republic. Yeah, I oh, love yeah. my country. Well, I've been, been there many times. Prague, great city. Anyway, uh, Jim, as the person who's new to this series, how are you feeling about having two more of these to watch? Well, if Hellworld is as bad as it gets, then you can only be looking up, can't it? You did mention that I believe one of these is Clive Barker's least favourite and had some very unpleasant words to say about it. So I'm, I'm looking forward to it, maybe. Yeah, I believe he said that he's uh, he shouted out one. better things. That was uh, it, so yes. Yeah. Revelations. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think the thing is, but and I still feel this re-watching it, while the quality of a lot of these movies is quite questionable, unlike part seven, I do think the series is better than the sum of its parts. You know, there's... Um, there's still something quite enjoyable about the concept mm. of it. Mm. Even in the lesser mm. films, I like seeing Cenobites. You know, I like the idea of yeah. this box that can open a dimension, uh, yeah. portal to hell. And while you do get worse ones, I think the films seem worse because you're comparing them to other ones in the series. With part seven, if you're just watching a film that's based around someone trying to open a dimension to hell and they're going to get their army to fight it or whatever, I think that it still seemed like quite a cool idea. Whereas because we've seen six other films beforehand and the idea has sort of lost its novelty. But there is there, you know, there's something about this property that fundamentally works for me. Yeah, eight aside, they've managed to keep going. Yeah, the quality dips dramatically. Um, but they've kept it going and they've kept it sincere. They haven't gone the same route as, say, A, a Nightmare on Elm Street or Friday the 13th, where the more they do, the more they realize it's silly and, and they kind of go down a bit of a goofy route with that. And mm-hmm. granted, yeah, I, I, I can watch any Nightmare on Elm Street film and have a good time. And I've, I guess it's the same with the Hellraiser ones as well. I'm enjoying them. Yeah, the last couple really dipped in quality, but overall it's it's been an enjoyable experience. Mm. And uh, Alistair, it's a person who's been a fan for the longest because uh, you've been a fan since, what, around about t- t- 2000 when the fifth was coming out. Mm-hmm. Like, how did you feel when, did you keep did you keep a track of these as they got released? Uh, kind of, yeah. Um, like, every time a new Hellraiser, I hear of a new Hellraiser film, I, just, I can't wait to hear it. I can't wait to see it, I should say. And, you know, it's always that sort of treat to know there's another Hellraiser film coming. I suppose it brings me back to when I watched the first film on uh, Channel 4, and then a week later there was the second instalment, because they did a a series of every Friday night, they showed late night Friday night, another Hellraiser film. And at a very pleasant surprise, I thought it was just a trilogy. Fourth week, I thought, I'll stay up late, just see what happens, turn it on to Channel 4, and then bam, there's another Hellraiser film, Hellraiser 4. So I was just pleasantly surprised with that and i think it reminds me of that anticipation of waiting for some entertainment to come and obviously i think those first four films are superior to uh what came after but um i mean the hellraiser films i enjoy and there's such scope for imagination and ideas there and i think the rick Boater trilogy that we're covering tonight it doesn't quite you know, fully manifest. It doesn't. Re- it, it, I mean, the one biggest complaint about all three of these films is essentially missed potential. 
And there's a lot of missed potential in all three of these films. Um, but there's still something in there that you could see what it could have been. I mean, it's not like the Halloween franchise, which is different timelines or some sequels ignore previous sequels. Um, some movie franchises are now quite convoluted. The Hellraiser won for 10 entries. It doesn't actually done that. There's even the bad ones that we're talking about tonight. They're, you know, they're canon. You can't. They're they're not bad enough where they've actually, like a sequel has to now try and explain away that one or anything. And I always think really creatively there's a slight problem, I think, with the Hellraiser franchise in that someone needs to play with the box to open it to get the pinheads to show up. And in many ways it's kind of like Jurassic Park in the sense that the dinosaurs are in cages, the dinosaurs have to get out of the cages for stuff to happen at some point. And first film we had a man who for profit shut down parts of the park to make out with embryos for the money that he wanted that was the most realistic means by which you know or the best reason that dinosaurs would escape from their cages and start eating people every single time you do a sequel you can't use the same reason the dinosaurs escape again and again but then your reasons for letting the dinosaurs get out are going to get more and more contrived I think in the most recent one, there was um, one of the head-butting dinosaurs managed to power its way out of mm. brick wall and everyone just followed, which I think was perhaps the lamest escape of all. And it's Hellraiser, for the potential pitfalls of having it, is the villains in this series have to be summoned. And there's never one where there's like, that's a bad reason for summoning the Cenobites. It's, it's, it's not quite fallen into the pitfalls that it could have. Yeah, yeah. I, I think what this has got over Jurassic Park, I suppose, if you're comparing the <laughs> two, is that Jurassic Park would no doubt be an international incident, whereas Hellraiser, who's going to believe a person that a demon came out of a box? So that's something you can run with for as many films as you like yeah. and make yeah. your own new continuity for it. And it doesn't necessarily have to tie up with anything that's come previous. I think another parallel here is with uh, Jaws, you know, where you have to be in the sea for the shark to get you. So, like, unless you have inadequate mares opening beaches all the time. I think there's a difficulty with how you shoehorn this back into a plot. Now, with these ones here, I think Bota's just a bit... He's uh, almost he's almost a bit too modest in terms of, like what he thinks char- the audience will let characters away with, right? Because in the first movie, you've got this power play going on with uh, with Julia, who's essentially trying to kill people to bring back her deceased lover. You know, how uh, how good a fucker this guy must be for her to want to bring him <laughs> back in corpse form and kill people. But the thing is, as, an audience, as the audience, we're in on this. We know we're part of the, uh, part of the caper. And yeah. we sort of let her away with this because we want to see what happens. Whereas... It frustrates me that six, seven, eight are all about discovering a backing story. It's just not really that interesting. Yeah. Mm. And, and like the thing is with Hellraiser, we want to see people do relatively horrible things because that's the series we signed up for. You know, it's about the kind of the darker parts of humanity, I guess. And then it becomes like these sort of psychological thrillers instead of films that are exploring particular sins and particular yeah. vices. Yeah. Uh, I think with all the best horrors, it's style and substance. And the first Hellraiser film, well, even two and three had that in spades, in my opinion. And, you know, slowly as the series progresses, it just gets less and less on the substance side of things. 
Folks, just like the director Rick Boatai, because you mentioned these films already, I fear that we're beginning to tread over uh, familiar territory. So, gonna gonna call an end to this one, but oh, do join us as uh, the journey ends with revelations and judgment. Oh, I'm personally really excited about seeing these two again and uh, completing the first mini-series for the Horror Cult Films podcast. So hope to see you guys there again. For now, it's a goodbye from me and a goodbye from these guys. See you later. All right, bye. Check out horrorcultfilms.co.uk White Bat Audio.